our podcast this week, we have a hat trick of amazing guests once again. We talk dumb money, but in a smart way, with that film's director, Craig Gillespie. We talk the creator, with the creator of the creator, Gareth Edwards, and we have a sing-song, metaphorically speaking, with Flora and Sons director, John Carney. All that, and the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that doesn't want to take credit for the end of the writer's strike. But, well, listen to this. Please resolve the strike. (laughs) I beg you. I beg you. I only have so many Gary Ross-related questions. I can't pull them out of my pocket all the time. Oh, my God. Please, my plants, they're dying. Please give me some moving news. Please, my colleagues are such lethal cunning. They are very sick. Uh, All right, should we have uh, our final guest? There you go, folks. There you go. Less than three or four days after we recorded that bit last week, the writer's strike was finally resolved. Do we take credit for it? No. But then again... I don't think it's a coincidence. It's all I'm saying. Uh, anyway, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning who thankfully haven't gone on strike in a sort of one-in-one-out situation. Uh, they are, of course, our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello. Uh, we're recording this at home, we by are. the way. Yes. We should say we should say we're recording this at home uh, because of a massive scheduling snafu on my part, which means this is Friday morning, the day that we have to turn this podcast around. So let's keep this one tight. A tight 380 minutes, I think, will be, will be fine. Uh, we're also joined by our great big fucking nerd in his palatial manner in Dorset. Uh, it is <laughs> <laughs> James Dyer. Thank you. While you're speaking about palatial homes, I discovered recently that the delightful residence that Gillian Anderson lives in 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 Netflix Sex Education can be rented out. I think it's just over the border. It's in the Y Valley, but I think it's just over the border in in England rather than in Wales. But it's uh, yeah, you can you can rent it out for like a presumably a very sexy weekend. (laughs) Wow! I think we should do it, and I think we should do the podcast from that house. I'm just saying. I I don't think I want to have a sexy weekend with you two. No, thank you. That is fair. There's even a treehouse. A sexy treehouse. When, when we signed up for this podcast, Helen was very, very yeah. clear there were no, no sexy, sexy weekends. weekends. Mind no, you, if there is a treehouse, I do like a treehouse. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we could build a tree here with the treehouse with the tree that was cut down uh, <gasps> by Adrian's wall. There's a lot of lumber lying around at the moment. So, that's, there is indeed. That's the one from Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, right? It is the one from oh. Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. It was more wooden than Kevin Costner's performance. Do you think <laughs> it was basically a cool hand Luke type situation where someone drunk was walking home and just cutting down trees while stumbling along? Unless someone was Leatherface and they had a chainsaw, <laughs> I don't really see yeah. how that is even possible. I'm not sure how many people's walk home brings them past Sycamore Gap well, on Robin Hadrian's Hood's, presumably. Well, Robin Hood's, which is weird because he was going from Dover to Nottingham <laughs> and you wouldn't think it was on the way, but, uh, but there you yeah. go. <laughs> anyway, uh, I should apologise because obviously we're doing this uh, remotely today because of my scheduling snafu. Helen is missing out on seeing Priscilla yep. today, Queen of the Desert, nope. the, the prequel to Queen of the Desert, uh, about how Priscilla... The, isn't it the, the bus? bus? Yeah, so it's no. the bus origin story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so how the bus falls in love with Elvis Presley. Yeah. It, you've got that half right at least. It's yeah. like Titan, yeah. only with the king of rock and roll. <laughs> wow. That is, no, that's a film I want to see. And it could be at next year's um, London Film Festival, who knows. But yeah, the film festival starts next week and they've started the press screenings already and I am missing it 
to be here, but that's fine. I'm not bitter or angry. <laughs> I did see a very good film this week. I don't know if I can talk about it yet, but I, I did see uh, a film which is which was at Toronto already, but I wasn't, so I oh, just got to see it. Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie. Um, so close, and um, and it was great. So I'm I'm looking forward to getting stuck into the festival this year and seeing as much as possible, if only to make the rest of my year easier and not mean that I have to see three films every Monday morning. You know. I, I think Helen's Helen's approach to film watching is actually a good one. It's it's like it's like hibernation, isn't it? You know, like when badgers do badgers hibernate. Let's say they do. Like before badgers hibernate, and they'll just like absolutely gorge on stuff. So then they're just done for the winter. So this is kind of mm-hmm. what you're doing. You're gorging on the film, so then you can you know take some time off. I'm just I'm not like fully taking time off, but like it would be nice to not have to see three films every Monday. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it it's would be. It gives it gives us a little bit more wiggle room, you know. I've got some evening screenings and stuff coming up as well. Obviously, that always helps, but um, but leaving everything until week of release is uh, is is a steady stream of of trauma. No, not trauma. That's too much. Badgers are largely nocturnal. In winter, badgers do not hibernate, they but they reduce their activity <gasps> during periods of cold weather. Badger don't activity increases at the start of the main mating season, resulting in increased road casualties no. because they're all big fans of the Beatles and particularly the White Album and Paul McCartney's track, Why Don't We Do It in the Road. No one will be watching us except for that bus. Uh, you, this is devastating news. Badgers don't hibernate. They don't hibernate. Is that really devastating? Well, it is for me because I, proportion I have an ongoing kind of passive-aggressive war with a local badger, and I kind of I always look forward to winter when I assume he will just sleep and leave me alone for a few months. But now it seems that this is just going to go on and on. It's, it's so it's many not questions. Good. Yeah, tell me about the war you have with a badger. Dan, his friends, the mole and the toad. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a wild, wild ride. Uh, yeah, I, I, so the badger has a thing where I wake up. I woke up one morning uh, when I had first moved to the countryside and my entire lawn Your palatial home was just <laughs> destroyed, like absolutely annihilated. And I obviously made the uh, assumption that you would do coming from London that it was feral teenagers. So I, you know, I was very upset. And then I found out that this badger is fucking with me. So we now have this issue with the badger and I consulted someone on how best to deal with a badger and they said, well, what you need to do is you need to, to buy them off because badgers inherently are quite lazy creatures. So what you do if you leave out like a bowl of nuts or food, the badger will eat that rather than destroy your lawn looking for insects. So I was like, but hang on, this is a fucking protection racket. You are paying the badger protection money not to destroy your lawn and I will have no part of it. So the badger comes in and goes, Hey, it's a nice line you got here. It'd be a real shame if something happened exactly. to it. Fuck you, baby. Me. Yeah, it's a bit like yeah. that. It is a bit like that. Wow. <laughs> Joe Pesci is a badger. Yeah. He's a friend of ours. Gonna fuck your line up, you fucking fuck. <laughs> a badger will have your arm off. Are you sure, though? Yep. Are, you, are you sure? Are you thinking about maybe literally any other creature? <laughs> Badgers are terrifying. Yeah. Again. Not the ones played by Michael Horton, but... Genuinely, if yeah. you like, genuinely Google this, so you look at the British badger and it has a kind of stately thing. You think monocles, you think tweed waistcoats. That's the kind of thing that you associate <laughs> with the British badger. You look at the American badger and fuck me, it looks like a, like a crackhead on a tear. Like it's absolutely it horrifying. Flick knives, chainsaws, <laughs> cutting down trees, national monuments, yeah. all sorts of things. 100%. That's what's happened. You know, it's, it's, you know, when you get an invasive species, an American badger is obviously over here and just felling trees left right and center do you know what it is it's nominative determinism <laughs> which is very difficult to say at nine twenty one on a friday uh the word bad is contained within uh, badger and so yeah. they feel they have to live up those badger stereotypes. To the, bone. the bad boys mm. they are badger to the bone they'll fuck you badger up boys for life in fact yeah good lord uh, anyway yeah tight 380 minutes <laughs> yes uh, shall we move on to a question let's please do so 
question. We had a question from someone who was asking about the um, in light of the Taylor Swift Eras tour film coming to England yes. does, before the Eras tour comes I know, to England. This is this is a real conundrum for me because I now don't want to watch it because you know spoilers. Uh, I don't want any third act. That's reveals. the most ridiculous thing I've ever uh, heard. And you just told me you were at war with the badger. <laughs> This is true, genuinely. So I don't want to watch the Eras Tour in cinemas before I've witnessed the Eras Tour in the flesh because I don't want spoilers. What are you doing? You can't spoil you can. a concert. You can. You can. Because it's not just a concert. It's not like when we used to go and see Audio Slave, where it's Chris Cornell just strumming away <laughs> on a we, stage. When we used to go to Audio Slave, like <laughs> yeah. one time. That one time we went to see Audio Slave. But, but like, <laughs> genuinely, like, it's a whole production with a narrative and sets and stuff. Uh, and I can't, I can't possibly spoil that. I don't want to. I don't want to know when the little cottage appears and all that, and when she does the dive thing into the water. I, I mean, yeah, I've I already like seen we enough. Can, we can on guess when the little cottage appears, though. I mean, that's not a big secret. The little cottage is going to appear for certain songs. The Cabin in the Woods. But James, a concert is completely different. It is about the experience of the moment. It is about, it is not about box ticking going, all right, we're now two hours into the Taylor Swift concert. Now she's going to play that one about the anti-hero. I, no, but I know I, I two think, Taylor Swift songs. I think, well, I think sometimes going to a, con- uh, to a gig and not knowing what they're going to play is part of the fun. I will say that I have been listening to the Eras Tour set list, so I do listen to the, in- so I know the entirety. <laughs> So I know the order the songs will appear in, and I'll be very, very familiar with it by the time it comes around. But that's not what I don't want to spoil. It's the visual treat. It's the drama. It's the stuff that's going to happen, the surprises. That's the stuff I don't want to spoil. I can see now why this badger wants to fuck up your garden. Honestly, what the hell is wrong with you, man? Uh, Anyway, we had a question about, it was from David Heslop, and it was, what are the pod's favourite concert movies or film stage productions? Uh, And we were talking about this beforehand because this is what I wanted to go with. And then Jimbo said, I've never seen anything. (laughs) Well, I've never never willingly watched a concert movie. I think it's fairly safe to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll we'll maybe do that another time. Once you once you've seen the Eras tour, you'll be like, it'll open you up. It'll be like a gateway drug, and I might then watch them all. Yeah. All of them. them. (laughs) Or every concert movie ever recorded. It's true. All right. Here's a question from at Ginge Kitty. Ginge Kitty on Twitter. Yes, Twitter. Inspired by your revelation about The Big Short this week, I basically said that I I was in the mood for film and I watched The Big Short again because I've seen The Big Short a lot. Uh, Which film of the last 10 years, so not childhood faves, has the pod team seen most? And because Ginge Kitty obviously knows where we live, Extra points for non-MCU titles, you <laughs> motherfucker. What films in that time have you seen most? Probably for me, Wilder People, because I have shown it mm. to a lot of different people. It has been my sit down and watch this kind of film for a while. So outside of the MCU, probably that. Um, I anticipate in the near future it becoming uh, Three Musketeers D'Artagnan, actually, because I've been sitting down a lot really? of people and watching Three Musketeers D'Artagnan. It's really fun. It's so fun. If you just want like a fun film, it's like an evening, you're all you're with friends or family and you're unwinding, you're like, put this on. This is great. It's got Eva Green in just the world's greatest hat, smoking a pipe and looking cooler than any human being has ever looked. I mean, why wouldn't you watch that? Come on. Jimbo. What stands out for you? Non-MCU titles, because that's just get out of the way. It's probably an MCU it's an, I mean, it's Endgame and Infinity War, <laughs> it isn't is. it? I mean, it goes without saying, like, by a substantial margin. <laughs> oh, that's very difficult. Um, I know I watched Equilibrium. See, this is going too, just too far back. It's before 2012. <laughs> too far back. I watched Equilibrium <laughs> an awful lot, and then obviously watched it again recently and had a, an unfortunate revelation. Um, the scales fell from a your little eyes. Bit, a little bit, which was you know, obviously less ideal. Um, the screening went not without incident. Not, not without incident. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
it's a classic i've got you know i've come around again i've come full circle it's, it's genius it's genius it's the best <laughs> film ever made let's uh let's just own that um oh god what have i watched the most this is difficult so i i like in terms of re-watching stuff most of my rewatch stuff will be before <laughs> this century i tend to rewatch the comfort movies the stuff that i kind of grew up with those are the ones that i'll always go back to because there's a there's a sort of a simplicity to it and there's a, a familiarity for it to it and i don't really need to concentrate as much and it just sort of seeps into me um but i watched us quite a number of times not get out us specifically us uh, huh. There was something about that that just really creeped me out, and I felt like I just kept having to go back to it. And I, because because I, I came out, I, was, I, I like I'm not saying it's a better film to get out, but I enjoyed it more. And I think I was trying to understand why I enjoyed it more. But I think there's just something about the creepy premise that just seeped into me, and I so I kept trying to watch it. And every time I watched it, it still weirded me out in the same way. So there's still something about that that kind of mesmerised me. But yeah, it was over the course of a couple of weeks. I watched it quite a number of times. There's a, there's a, a number of films that I kind of return to. Uh, again, a few of them are outside the the confines of the question. So something like Margin Call, yeah, is something that I'll revisit quite a lot. I revisit films like Margin Call and The Big Short, despite the fact I don't understand them. <laughs> I was going to say, like, what is it about high finance that fascinates you? Because you don't have any. No, so this is the irony, isn't it? Yeah, I don't have any. I don't understand any of it. Uh, it's all nonsense. It's all just people talking gobbledygook. Um, but I love those films. I think they're tremendous. And then there, there are other films that I will rewatch as comfort food. Mm. The Paddingtons. The Paddingtons. The Paddingtons. I guess I would rewatch those as comfort food, although I haven't revisited either of them for a while. Um, there's a couple of films that I revisit a lot, and this is where people will judge me immediately. Now You See Me is a film that I will revisit I can understand uh, why. every now and again because I just think it's a really slick popcorn film um, with a lovely ensemble at its cast and some good sequences and it, it just it just makes me happy it makes me happy what can I say uh, The Equalizer 2 <laughs> <laughs> well John Wick on would brand, definitely Chris, be one of on mine brand. Definitely yeah. John Wick. I've watched that a yeah. whole bunch of times. Yeah, John Wick for sure. John Wick or yeah. not, not Chapter 2 or 3? Uh, chapter 2 is my favourite, but I've seen the first one many more times than I've seen yeah, the second one. Same mm. with the first one. Game Night yeah. is mm. a film that I revisit quite a lot, and I can see myself revisiting Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. I was going to say mm -hmm. that. Honor Among Thieves in much the same way. Um, and probably, probably the one that's not an MCU film that I've revisited most and that I try to watch it at least once a year. Uh, would be the big short, actually. But it's uh, The Nice Guys. Oh, I, I yeah, just watched that the other night. Course. So good. So yeah. good. I, the thing is, one of these things, I really would like to see more from those characters. Like, I want mm. something more with them. I feel like their story is not finished. I feel it is, sadly. <laughs> Chris is done. Done one and done. That's it. He's out. He's finished. I feel it's done, sadly. Uh, I'd love to see more, but I think it's over. And uh, another couple of big ones from me. Actually, the the question asker, Ginge Kitty, uh, says The Martian was a big one for them. Oh, yeah. I'll always watch that. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of thing where you can come in, you can stick it on. If it's on the TV, you go, yes, please. I'm having a bit of that. Yeah. It's an easy watch, Thank you. Well, do you not find also, like, I find the Cornetto trilogy is one that if you see it on, you kind of just think, well, I'm now sitting down for this. So, mm. Yeah. Isn't it weird that... The world's end was 10 years ago. Yeah, that's the no, one that makes light. Right. <laughs> old, but, uh, old, old, old beyond belief. Yeah. Edge of Tomorrow. Yes. Oh, great movie. Without a doubt. 
Edge of Tomorrow is a is an amazing film. It gets better and better um, <laughs> yeah. each time because well, it's because also it's a new film with I'm a new title Luke. every time you watch it. <laughs> yeah. So that's nice. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that is a genuinely brilliant film. That's another film where when you get to the end of it, you desperately maybe this is the TV head uh, on me, but I just want more. I need more. I can't not have more. Um, and yet there is no more. Because the yeah. script, which was banging around for Edge of Tomorrow 2, which presumably was called Edge of Day After Tomorrow, um, that uh, you know that was floating around for ages and obviously just never went anywhere. But it, it existed and was, by all accounts, very, very good. But yeah. Yeah, and by all accounts, had a really good idea for it as well. Mm. A really a really nice way into that world. Ah, that's a shame. Uh, but yeah, Edge of Tomorrow is, mm. is absolutely tremendous. Uh, and there's tons of films, tons of films I kind of you know love to... Revisit every now and again, but in terms of annual watches, I will try and rewatch Edge of Tomorrow mm. at least once a day. <laughs> uh, all right, so quickly, MCU. What's the MCU film you've seen most in the last ten years? Which means if we go back ten years, that cuts off the Avengers. That means we're going from Iron Man three onwards. Oh, well, going from the greatest MCU movie, so that's uh, that's good. Um, it's not the one I've seen the most. The one I'm I'm almost certain the one we've collectively seen the most is probably Endgame because there was that period where you guys in particular were like seven, eight, nine, and like it was this ridiculous competition you seem to have going on. No competition. It no? just happened that I saw it nine times in the cinema. It's what? Nine <laughs> totally. Times. Did you really see it nine times? I think in the so. Cinema? Wow. Uh, and yes, if the scope of the question blocks off uh, First Avenger, then it's almost definitely uh, Infinity War Endgame followed by. Iron Man 3 followed by Ragnarok, something like that. It, Ragnarok is very rewatchable. Mm. To be to be fair, I think most, if not all of them, are at least to some extent pretty rewatchable. Uh, I've watched mm. Thor The Dark World quite a lot, and I, I will not apologise for it. Uh, to quote Ben Travis, good movie. This is a safe space <laughs> for Thor The Dark World. Good stuff. Tight 380. Uh, if you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, uh, Twitter is still the only game in town until Elon Musk makes it not so. Uh, and I am Chris Hewitt on Twitter. You can slide into my DMs. You can reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing, of course, or you can reply to a panicked shout out every now and again. All right. Shall we have a guest? Let's do it. Who do you want? we got three people. we got three guests this week. We had Wes Anderson as well, but uh, for his short film, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, which is on Netflix this week. Helen may be talking about that later on in the review section. I'm not sure. Uh, but because there's so many guests, we're going to... We're not bumping Wes Anderson. One does not simply bump Wes Anderson, but we're going to push Wes Anderson gently back into next week. Delayed gratification, if you will. Where he'll have more room to shine because he's Wes goddamn Anderson. Mm. Uh, but that means we have John Carney, we have Gareth Edwards, or we have Craig Gillespie. Who do you want? John Carney. John Carney? Jimbo, do you concur? Yes, I concur. Let's have, let's have John Carney. All right, this is John Carney, who is the Irish filmmaker behind films like Once and Begin Again and Sing Street, all of which are very rewatchable. Mm. And now he's back, back, back with Flora and Son, which is in cinemas at the moment and debuts today, Friday, 29th of September, 2023, on Apple TV Plus. And it is an incredibly charming uh, drama, comedy drama about Flora, played by Eve Hewson, daughter of Bono, uh, and her attempts to bond with her tearaway son and how they bond over music, because as this is a John Carney film and the man is a musician and he knows his way around 
some songs. There are some great songs in this. Wouldn't say it's a musical, but it, it, there are some great, great songs in this. Uh, and it's all about someone learning how to play the guitar, which is lovely. And that's kind of where we started, because when I spoke to John Carney on Zoom earlier on this week, he was in his Dublin abode. And uh, behind him was a guitar and a piano and probably a saxophone and a ukulele and all kinds of wonderful stuff. Uh, maybe he was in a music shop. I can't be sure. Anyway, had a lot of fun talking to John Carney. The film's great. Here we are. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director of Flora and Son, Mr. John Carney. How are you, sir? Very well. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Couldn't help but notice, John, you've got your guitar behind you there. Uh, is that... Yeah, we, beforehand prop. we were talking. No, not a prop, obviously. <laughs> you know how to play a guitar, I'm guessing, but uh, that's where it lives. That's where it lives, beside the piano and the bass and the and the uh, and the garage band on my laptop. That's my studio there. That's as better <laughs> as fancy as it gets. What's your writing instrument of choice? Piano. Okay, why is that? I mean, uh, to, to me, the piano is, is probably the most sophisticated of all instruments in terms of composition, obviously, because the permutations seem to go on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, as long as there's human beings, that that instrument will never run out of ideas. You know, you just don't need anything else. It's like chess or something. It's just like I can keep doing. There's 88 of them. <laughs> I've got 10 of these. You do this, move it one millimeter and completely different vibe and tone. And it just seems to be the perfect instrument designed for by, for and by humans. Yeah. And what about the guitar? The guitar obviously is a little, little more limited, but at the same time, when you sit down to write something. No, the guitar is... The guitar is obviously... It doesn't really matter in the end of the day. I'm sure you could... Play, if you take a great song... You know, like if you take a George Gershwin song, you can transpose it on from the piano onto the guitar and in the hands of a good arranger, it'll be brilliant on the guitar as well. You know, or Bach music on the guitar is beautiful. I don't know if Bach would have ever known that it would have gotten played on the guitar. Yeah. It was never written for guitar, but it's stunning on guitar. Yeah, because there's a lot going on. The reason I'm talking about guitars is there's there's a lot going on in in Flora and Son. Uh, One of the threads uh, is that essentially this is about discovering your first guitar and discovering yourself through music. Now, I am I am a very, very, very limited, very shabby guitarist, but I remember very distinctly my first guitar. And I wonder if that was something that drove you in a way to find that thread in this, in this, in this film. Yeah, of course. I think every musician remembers their first, you know, real personal instrument that was bought for them or they found or they got themselves. Um... And I think somebody giving you an instrument is probably different because I actually had a guitar that I kind of borrowed from a friend's house when I was 12. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have my own guitar until my mother bought me one. And yeah, that's the big day in my life, you know, that I remember. And I was trying to sort of subvert that a little bit, obviously, with this kid rejects the guitar. I didn't want it to be a memoir of my own life or anything like that. So I sort of decided to play against that and thought, oh, it'd be interesting now if, you know, if if he gave her the guitar back and said I didn't want it, that sort of is a more interesting place for the relationship to need to go, you know, because it's like, how do you take that and fix that? Because it's, you know, to reject your mother's present is pretty hardcore. And yeah. also it suggests that she really doesn't know you. Is that is that roughly where you started the, the film? It's been a while, obviously, you've been, you've been working on Modern Love uh, as well in the interim since since Sing Street. But yeah. you also, you 
do take your time with your movie. So does it, how does it work essentially? How do, how do ideas form and how do you turn them into, 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 into what we see? I, I think I try to um, turn my, my life into, you know, I don't like to kind of um, look at filmmaking as just the work that I go in to do. And, you know, I, I say goodbye to the kids and I get up and I go and I do this work and then I come home and I clock out of that work only, only because I didn't, that's not the reason I left school and became a filmmaker. You know, the whole reason for becoming a filmmaker was to not feel like it was work, but because it was artistic and you wanted to express ideas and have fun with your mates. And I, I tried to maintain that, um, you know, that, 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 that kind of approach to making films. So, you know, my wife is in this movie, my kids appear in it, the music that I'm writing around the house is in it. My relationship with my mother is in it. It's like, I don't want to just go and be a filmmaker on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I wanted to sort of segue and for it to move aside to accommodate my life, but also for my life to feed the film. Yeah. So there must become there must come a time when you realize, okay, I'm ready. There's something that I want to pursue. There's a kernel of an yeah. idea here I want to develop. Yeah, and a lot of the time it's just sit, spent ruminating and sitting down with people giving out to you saying, "Why aren't you working?" And you're like, "I am working." It just looks like I'm playing PlayStation. <laughs> yeah, I recognize that. I can relate to that very much. So, very much so. So, what was the what was the, uh, for want of a better phrase, inciting incident then for you that that brought Flora and Son to life? Getting to the end of GTA. <laughs> you went, right, okay, I need something. I need a new challenge. Yeah. Um, I think it was just that the pandemic sort of crystallized it for me. I had written a bunch of scenes and it didn't really me- feel like anybody would want to watch people talking on screens before the pandemic. So I shut down the movie on page 20 when they start talking on screen. I was like, nobody's going to want to watch that. And then obviously we started Zooming the whole Western hemisphere started to sort of see each other through screens. And that then completely revised the movie for me. Cause it was like, Oh, now the very thing that was holding this film back um, is the way forward. And it'll in fact, let people in to the movie, even though I thought screens and dislocation was like not enough now it's actually the very reason for making the movie is to sort of now see if I can work with these limit, limiting tools yeah. of, of a relationship, uh, you know, an overseas relationship that never actually happens in a room. So you always had this idea of a mother and her son struggling to connect and there's that this being this, this kind of lack of communication between the two of them. And, and that was, you know, thinking a lot about my own mother and her relationship with me now that I'm a father. Mm-hmm. And sort of the side, the circle of all of that was was something that I was thinking a lot about when I was, you know, walking around ruminating. Eve is a, a you know fantastic in this, and Flora is a wonderful, wonderful character. I love how unfarnished she is. Uh, and can you talk about creating that character? Well, I mean, basically, I was thinking about my own mother, who was funny and had a very funny turn of phrase and she was able to like she was very funny in the way she would describe something that she was annoyed at and when she got angry the angrier she got the funnier she got in a way and so i was thinking about that but then i was thinking well you know my mother class you know we were middle class kids really i didn't want this to be 
identified as a memoir of my own life or my life with my mother. So I kind of had to cover my track, cover the cover the tracks to the cave a little bit. So I decided <laughs> to make her different in as much as she's a young mom. She's struggling financially. She's feels like she's in a trap in terms of her housing situation. There were important sort of factors to try and kind of disguise my own story a little bit. And you know, I'm 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 I love Dubliners by James Joyce. I love the way that that book sort of swoops down over Dublin and picks up these characters and in this very non-judgmental way sort of goes into the houses of these Dubliners on 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 a certain at a certain period of time and explores these character real Dublin characters, you know, characters who who are defined to a degree by the city that they live in. Because Dublin's a very small city. And there's something that identi- when you're when the capital city is as small as Dublin is, you know, you find yourself having the same experiences as every other Dubliner has had. So I went to Sing Street School, which is a very different school to where I grew up, but we generally had the same experiences, you know, because you went into town, you went to Stephen's Green, you went to the, you know, Rings End or up to Killiney Hill for a walk or out Dolly Mount Strand. There were there's only so much you can do in Dublin. And that brings us in in in, in a way that uh that I that I that I enjoy listening. And I cycle around on my bike and listen to Dubliners and hear them scream and talk and get drunk and fight and squabble. There's a musicality to that. Yeah. And there's an entertainment value to it that you wouldn't get like in New York or LA in my travels anyway, or even Paris. Mm. Or even parts of London, like, but you really get it in Dublin. You get it in Glasgow, you get it in Edinburgh, you get it in, I don't know what it is, but you get this sort of sing-song sort of thing um, that we all relate to in Dublin. I've got, I've got to ask about the music uh, in this, because uh, it is very, very different from from Sing Street. There, there, obviously, there are songs in here as well, but they're very, very much part of the, the fabric of the film and of the characters' lives. Uh, do you see it as a, as a musical in that sense, or or how did you approach it? I, I, I don't see it as a musical. I see it more as a, um, you know, a musically themed movie. The other films that I've done, um, and music plays a very important part in that, but less so than a traditional musical. It, th- th- this is hopefully more about. Um, the modern times that we find ourselves in, in terms of Zoom and technology and creativity and sharing and, um, but but it's less a musical I think than my other films. I, I think it's more like a, you know, I like to I like to sort of look. I'm a musician, so I'm always using music in my real life. I use music with my kids all the time, and um, you know, not just listening to music, but like pausing real life. You know, sometimes your kid comes in and you're at the piano or you're in a room with the piano and your kid asks you a question and you just don't answer it for a second and you play a tune on the piano and you sort of sing an answer to them and it makes them laugh. And I've seen other musicians' houses, similar things happen where the guy always has a guitar on his knee or is messing around or... And it's weird. It's like you're, you kind of get to take a pause you're still thinking about life and you're still answering the question, but you just get to, it's not just line, 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 line. It's like pause and 
And I find that interesting in real life, and I find it very interesting in films. Um, and I suppose that's more what I describe this film as, as a film about somebody who discovers a guitar, but it, and, and it's the fact that it's a guitar leads it to be a musical-themed film, but she could have actually discovered, you know, a loaded weapon, or she could have discovered money, or she just could have discovered cocaine. Mm. It does, you know, it's, it doesn't have, it didn't have to be music. No, absolutely not. But it is music, and 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 for you, we talked a little bit about your first guitar. Was that a light bulb moment for you? Was that? Did you grow up in a musical household? Had you already inclinations in that in that direction before the guitar came along? Or my mother was into music. My bro, my oldest brother was really, really into music. Um, yeah, it was a musical family. Music played a played an important role. We'd sit around the record player. Um, and, um, you know, there was good music playing a good bit in my house, but I wouldn't say it was a mad music. Like we didn't get lessons and stuff like that. And there weren't tons of instruments around. Um, but music was, music was important. And my mother loved music and Frank Sinatra came on or there was, you know, Top of the Pops was a thing in our house. And my brothers got into, uh, Old Grey Whistle Test and, but I was very much in their shadow. You know, there was, it, it, it was, I was the youngest in a family of four and I was really like the kids soaking it all up, mm. which is a lovely position to be in, in life, to be the youngest and to look at, you know, cause your, your older siblings are kind of paving the way and bringing everything home. And you can just, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a very, um, it's a very lucky position to have in a family to, 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 to be the youngest. Did that mean that, um, uh, you had to prove yourself as well. <laughs> You're always fighting for attention, I guess. Exactly. I still am trying to get their validation. It's very weird. <laughs> uh, just a couple of last questions, John, if you don't mind. Um, what was the first song you ever learned to play on the guitar? That I ever learned to play on the guitar? Oh, my God. I think it was, I think I learned to play, oh, my God, that's such a tricky question. First song on guitar. Oh, I think I think it was um, "Smoke on the Water," <laughs> but like every bass player and guitar player probably in Dublin, that was their first song. I mean, from the seventies, anyway. <laughs> you go straight for the the meaty, heavy riffs because they're easy. E, e, whatever it is, you know, E G A E G, whatever you know, whatever that riff is. And then I think I did learn a few U two bits and pieces, but then I got very into funk bass playing. And uh, got into my jazz fusion and funk and stuff. The house was a little bit avant-garde for a while. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it's very interesting you mentioned you too. That obviously brings us on to, to Eve. So as a, as a Dubliner, directing, yeah. directing Eve Hewson, is that a strange experience? Well, I mean, I know him a bit and I know her mom a bit. So it's kind of like, you know, um, I, I don't... I don't you know they're 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 not a completely unknown family to me in in a sense i mean i don't know them well but i've been to the house a couple of times and we've talked about music and film and all of that so i feel like um you know i wasn't i'd probably be more nerve-wracked if i didn't and i'd be like what if bono shows up or comes down to see Am I any good as a director? You know, he kind of knew my films and, and I think the family knew my films. So they're like, he's, he's likely to make 
something okay. Um, but no, I don't see Eve is very much herself. Yeah. You know, she's her own. I mean, there's a great time when we forgot her guitar one day and she was like, um, she was on the phone and she was like, you know, hey mom, will you I'm I'm will you bring my guitar? And she was like, Oh, where are you? He's like, I'm down on set. Will you just get into the car and drive it down? And then we were thinking it'd be funny if Bono and Ali drive down and drop the guitar out the window. You know, in exactly the way you drop your hockey stick to your daughter if she forgets, you know, and 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 that's funny. But I I think that Eve is definitely like doesn't want any, she doesn't want any um, kit gloves or to be handled in any way, um, and she also wants to prove herself as as a worthy, you know, act, you know, she, as an actor in her own right, which she is like a hundred percent. Doesn't what she's doing on that screen? You cannot do just because you know you, you, your dad knows famous people and you you you, you know is a good singer and writes great songs. You can't, that's a gift. That's like a thing she has and she's honed it and she's worked it and she's a grafter and all that, but she has that gift and she'd have it whether she was whoever, whoever's kid she was. Um, and it's, it's helpful, I think, in terms of her style as a person and her tone, is, it's helpful that she's been at that table, which has probably had whoever, you know, any any number of rock stars and great artists and poets and writers, she's grown up at that table. So she knows what she's talking about. Yeah. And she's able to give you advice on things that is very plausible and thought through. And, you know, she's so she that side of her, she's happy to lean into. But in terms of her acting and her status and where she is in her life, she's her own She's her own person. She's incredibly natural. There's a there's a, a moment. I mean, she's so funny. I mean, um, in the film, but there's a moment where she's learning how to play the guitar for the first time, and uh, she's learning about the the C chord. And I was just thinking, she's played the C chord before, and <laughs> like, like she knows her way around a guitar. Well, actually, you know, that's funny that you say that. Yes, in that she learned for the film, but she didn't actually. She wasn't a guitarist. But obviously, you can't if you watch somebody really learning C for the first time. Yeah. You turn that movie off. <laughs> if you want to go and watch that, go and get your seven-year-old lessons like I'm doing. It's tedious. Or watch YouTube. But So you have to fast track it a bit. So we had to obviously teach. And she had to learn, okay, I now know C, D, G, F, whatever. I dropped my finger. But, but, but I don't know it particularly well. And, but, you know, I think she does a great job in... in, in we we managed somehow in this movie to like show somebody learning something, yeah. not becoming ridiculously good at it where it's implausible, but also not becoming painfully authentic that it's like you never want to watch this movie again. John, I'm going to let you go. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, sir. Thank you, man. I'm delighted you like the movie. Uh, absolutely, a fantastic movie. And um, you know, get right in on that piano and guitar and bring us another one as soon as you can. Well, of course. <laughs> Fantastic. Cheers, man. Thanks a lot. Okay, so that was John Carney. And now it's time to delve deep into the movie news section. And good news, folks. There is some movie news this week. Hooray. One Hooray. big story this week, I would say. And it is, above all else, that Lucasfilm are cleaning up the jizz. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Yes, That's yes. I want to start with this. I want to start with this because this has kind of blown my mind that obviously jizz music is a Star Wars thing. It is apparently Max Rebo's chosen oeuvre. Uh, but after what can only be described as decades of people sniggering about it, Lucasfilm have... He traffics in jizz. Yeah, have retconned the jizz to make it Jats 
music. J-A-T-Z. So Max Rebo is now a jazz musician instead of a jizzmeister. But crucially, they've also made it possible for jizz to continue to exist in the Star Wars universe because they've said that it had some other names and colloquialisms and nicknames <laughs> over the years that were perhaps less than savoury. Oh boy. Uh, so, so Chats is now the official name for jazz in the Star Wars universe, but we still embrace jizz. Jizz hands, everybody. Yes. Jizz oh, hands. No. Oh no, that's terrible. Do not sit in the front row of that concert. <laughs> well. That's, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> Helen. Steer us away from the jizz, oh, please. God. So the writer's strike is over. Hooray! Hooray. Uh, after 160, 146 days, uh, the WGA reached a deal with the Amptable, um, which seems to have uh, pr- pretty much given them everything they, or near enough everything they wanted. Um, some huge concessions on the studio's part at last. And even more exciting, or at least as exciting, is the news that the Amputaba is now Amputaba. in negotiations with SAG-AFTRA as well. So those yes. are ongoing as we speak, as we record. Um, yes. But given that this deal was finally hammered out in about five intense days of negotiation, there's every reason to hope for a swift re- resolution to the uh, writer to the actor strike as well, which would mm. get films back up and running, which would be really good news for everybody in this country who's waiting to get back to work. All the c- crew members here. Um, yes, but never mind them. It's more important wow. for us because we had no movie news to talk about, and now we will have loads of movie news to talk about because it will be making movies again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is also quite important though for them. What with you know paying bills and living and such. But, you know, yes, okay. I, I appreciate we are the real victims here Weird and uh, the real winners. But, okay. um, but it is, it's fantastic news. I think actually, in, in retrospect, the WGA was really helped by the fact that a US court uh, made the very sensible judgment that you cannot copyright AI generated work because it's not, you know, art or speech. It's just some stuff that happened. Um, and I think that genuinely really helped them get the the AI which issues, which were one of the final sticking points over the line, because the yeah. studios realised they have to assign a writer's name to it for it to be copyrightable. And that means that they pretty much had to give in on those points. So, and um, they've had really great concessions as well on other yeah, things, like so. um, a showrunner on a TV show now has to be a writer. Because they were trying to get around that by making it like an, an EP or someone who would be on the studio side of things who would come in and basically just tear up people's work. And uh, so they've got really, really interesting concessions in that. They've mm-hmm. got um, concessions in terms of streamers now will actually tell them how many hours something has racked up. Yeah. Whether that news gets to us, I don't know, but it gets to them for sure. So this is great. And fair play to them. 146 days. Um, 146 days and they, they've held fast and they've gone through, they've put themselves through, a lot of them have put themselves through real financial hardship to do so. There's been great tales of, of uh, benevolence and generosity on the parts of a lot of people. Drew Carey, um, who is the, you know, the, obviously from the Drew Carey show, the host of Whose Land Is It Anyway over there and The Price Is Right. And, you know, he's been donating literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to pick up tabs at coffee shops and restaurants yeah. and things like that. There's there's other other stories uh, that, that run across the, the writer's strike in the States. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that tipped it over the edge, Helen, if I'm honest, is last week's episode. Uh, I know <laughs> of course, try, of I've tried to take the credit for this already, but uh, I think it's very, very clear that the the Writers Guild of America and I'm um, tip, 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 
listened to the show, realized that we were scraping the barrel, quite frankly, in terms of movie news and decided to generate some movie news. And, so, and we do appreciate that. We do appreciate that. Um, yeah. I have to say, though, I full credit to someone I, I saw post online today. In retrospect, you probably shouldn't go up against writers in a contest of who can keep doing something longer while not making any money. Um, <laughs> because uh, that, that, that's probably true. But uh, but yeah, the, the actor is now hopefully next and uh, hopefully everybody back to work with a fairer deal. Yeah. Back to work. Back to work, everybody. Uh, so the movie news hasn't ratcheted up to pre-strike levels just yet. Um, I haven't seen too many announcements of things being made. But one thing that is definitely coming out uh, on February 2nd next year in cinemas and then on Apple TV Plus is Matthew Fawn's Argyle, mm. which has been shrouded in secrecy uh, since it was first announced. No one really knew what it was, except it was a spy thing with Henry Cavill, and we'd seen a picture of Henry Cavill with a, quite frankly, <laughs> magnificent awful hairdo. Hair. Awful. Uh, and now we have seen the trailer, and it is maybe not quite what you were expecting. Yeah, this looks really fun. I really enjoyed this trailer. Um, so, yes, Henry, Henry Cavill is a super spy, and he's up against Dua Lipa, weirdly, with the help of John Cena. Of course, this all makes sense. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Barbie reunion. Barbie reunion, was shot exactly. Barbie. Fantastic yeah. news. Um, and uh, and then it transpires that he is actually a character in a book written by Bryce Dallas Howard, uh, but she becomes a target for spies herself because it turns out her books are basically predicting the real world somehow. So um, some real people, some bad people, are after her, and she gets the uh, she gets Sam Rockwell basically to look after her and try to keep her alive. Um, and I guess it's about the difference between fiction and reality and the crazy spy exploits um, in her books versus the, well, to be honest, equally as crazy looking exploits on the face of this in real life. But presumably there's going to be a little bit of a, of a gap there when we actually see it. I suppose there is a gap between the sort of the, the locations we see Henry Cavill and Julipa in in the book and then, you know, the basically... British rail train that we see Bryce, Bryce Dallas Hard and Sam Rockwell on. So I guess they'll be leaning into that kind of contrast a bit more in the film. But this looks really fun. I'm up for it. Jimbo, have you seen it? I have not watched the trailer yet. No, it's on my two watch list. I'm very fascinated by this kind of weird mashup of seems to be Mission Impossible and Ruby Sparks. But that, that, that seems like a match made in heaven to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I spoke to Matthew Vaughn this week for a trailer breakdown for it. And, um, you know, there's a lot of crazy action in the film and uh, unusually they're withholding quite a lot of it from mm. the trailer so good um, and this is the last film of Brad Allen who was a genius second unit director and, and fight coordinator he passed away just before the film the film went before cameras uh, I'm assured that he's you know he was planning some crazy crazy stuff uh, and the chemistry looks great mm. uh, I'm fascinated to see how they they have fallen makes this work the real world stuff with Sam Rockwell and Bryce Dallas Howard and then how the fantasy stuff, if it is fantasy stuff, fits into all that. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. But um, but yeah, I think it's going to be tonally very different as well from, from the Kingsman movies. Mm. Um, I don't think it's going to be R-rated for a start. It's going to be PG-13. And there may even be, as Fall Messainers, may maybe even more of a romantic side. So I would say maybe think Stardust more Ooh. stardust like this is maybe more return to to that level of of matthew fawn rather than the more cynical slash juvenile side of matthew fawn which i you know i'm a, i'm a big fan of but uh <laughs> i'm also a big fan of stardust so i'm really 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 excited about this movie 
Yeah. A couple of other things, and this is stage-related. We'll have to do another spin-off if this carries on <laughs> like this. Uh, it was announced this week that Steve Coogan is going to be starring in Armando Iannucci's adaptation of Dr. Strangelove mm. on the West End stage next year. And yes, he is going to be playing the roles that Peter Sellers played uh, in the Stanley Kubrick movie, which is interesting, fascinating. You know, yeah. we've long th- said that if there's an heir to Peter Sellers, it's Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> Only kidding. Only kidding. It's Mike Myers. Only kidding. No, it's Steve Coogan. Uh, yeah. But he's certainly up there. I mean, he's got this incredible versatility, this ability to blend into, into characters. And how can he do that in the confines of a play? Written by Armando Iannucci, directed by Sean Foley, who's an amazing theatre director. Uh, it starts next year, next September, I think it is. But that's wild. I cannot wait, not just to see his take on Dr. Strangelove, but how he does the phone call. You know the scene I'm oh, talking yeah. about? Oh, yeah. That's a very good point. Great bit of casting. I can't think of anyone better, quite mm-hmm. frankly. In the interest of a clumsy but well-intentioned segue, um, we lost a giant of the stage this week. We did. Uh, yesterday, in fact. And, of course, of the screen, both small and big, Michael Gambon. Sir Michael Gambon passed away at the age of 82 yesterday following a, a bout with pneumonia. Yeah. And this is just a really, really sad loss. It really is. He was a- astonishingly prolific um, when you when you look at it. Because for somebody whose whose big screen career really took off kind of later in life, you know, there were there were a few sort of false starts. Things like the Cook, the Thief, his wife and her lover, you know, didn't immediately launch him into Hollywood success. I think he he said once himself that he expected toys with Robin Williams. You know, people were talking about mm. that being his big break and that would get him into Hollywood. And obviously right. that that film didn't. Um, so it, his his success in film came a little bit later, but he was astonishingly prolific before that in stage and on TV and yep. continued to be even after his film career took off. So as well as obviously being the second and let's be honest, the most important Dumbledore throughout the Harry Potter series, you know, he was also in things like Gosford Park and Sleepy Hollow and The Life Aquatic and Layer Cake, fantastic in that. He mm-hmm. was the king in the King's Speech or the, the outgoing king, if you like. He was in Hail Caesar, my beloved Hail Caesar. Um <laughs> He was Uncle Pastuzo in he Paddington's, was. you know, was, um, yeah. uh, uh, as well as the singing detective, as well as May Gray on TV, as well as virtually every role in the Shakespeare canon. Um, he's just a huge, huge giant of a man. And also, uh, I think, have you, either of you guys interviewed him over the years? No. Really fucking funny. Just a delightful yeah, human. Yeah, really fun interview. I mean, didn't didn't give a hoot about interviewing and was famous for lying in interviews, just to be clear. Um, but I remember when we when we shot him for the Empire, you know, Harry Potter special at the end of the the Harry Potter run, um, we we did a shoot with him and Robbie Coltrane together in New York. And they seemed to just be competing to tell the dirtiest jokes um the whole way through the shoot. It was it was utterly delightful. What a, what a man. That's amazing. Jimbo, you met him? I did, yes. It was a red carpet interview for insert name of interchangeable Harry Potter film here. Uh, <laughs> I remember chatting to him that just him just again, just being really funny, really lovely, uh, in a way that not everyone is on a red carpet interview. But yeah, he he was a del- he was a delight. It was wonderful. I, I never had the, the pleasure. Um but it was wonderful yesterday when you know when when news of his death hit Twitter and people who had worked with him, people like Rufus Jones and and Tim Downey were sharing these wonderful anecdotes uh, because he had this r- kind of ribald sense of humor, didn't he? And 
uh, and he, uh, he he he. Did you guys hear this? At one point, he had a pilot's license. I heard this. <laughs> He had a pilot's license and apparently he did this at least once, but there's there's uh, rumours that he did it several times. That he would take people up in his his light airplane and then pretend to have a heart attack at the controls. <laughs> <laughs> he apparently did it to a friend who was, had a terror of flying and he was like, look, I'll take you up and I'll show you. You'll be able to see the instruments. You'll be able to see that it's okay. And then pretend to have a heart attack at the controls. <laughs> It's Obviously, Empire does not condone we faking don't. a heart attack at the controls no. of a plane, or indeed having a heart attack at the controls of the plane. We Although think that's we, we also bad. We realise that maybe beyond your control. <laughs> True, but you know, um, but yeah. Just... We, we, the last thing we want is if someone has a heart attack at the controls of a plane to have our condemnation ringing in our ears, Helen. <laughs> you know, we want them to focus on survival, getting through it. I mean, yes, but also we want them to not have a heart attack. If you're if you feel like you're having a heart attack, maybe don't fly a plane. That's all I'm saying. All right. Okay. Let's bring things back to Michael Gambon, shall we? Uh, yes. <laughs> although he may appreciate this little detour. Uh, he was amazing. And I, I, it's interesting you said that about the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. He's amazing in that film. And I would have thought that that performance got him toys. I, I think maybe the full start was then toys, but it, do you know what I mean? It didn't, it didn't get him sort of onto the list uh, at that point. It f- feels like that came a bit later that the, mm. he became, you know, this character actor who's in everything a good 15 years after that, you know? Um, but yeah. again, it's not like he wasn't busy otherwise, and it's not like he wasn't doing good work otherwise. Um, and a lot of the people who worked with him on stage talking about the way that he, every night he did something different, every performance he did something different. Um, he was he was always kind of searching for a new a new angle on things, and I think that's that's probably what kept him going and kept him prolific for as long as he was. Yes, indeed, Michael Gambon, Sir Michael Gambon, who passed away at the age of eighty two this week. He wasn't the only great we lost this week. David McCallum. Ilya Kuryakin from The Man from Uncle, one of the last major cast members of my beloved The Great Escape, Ducky from NCIS, 20 series of that, and I'm sure you guys have heard this as well, Ace Musician passed away at the age of 90. Wow. British actor, but obviously he'd made his home in America because of the success of NCIS. Uh, which is an incredibly difficult show for me to say, apparently, today, um, uh, where he played Ducky, uh, Dr. Dr. Donald Mallard, mm-hmm. nicknamed Ducky, uh, who is the kind of the chief cutter-upper blokey. Yes, he was. Apparently, uh, like uh, certainly, it was claimed in, in uh, his son's statement, his son Peter gave a statement after his death, saying he was a true Renaissance man, c- capable of conducting a symphony orchestra, and if needed, could actually perform an autopsy based on his decades of research hmm. uh, for his role in NCIS. So I don't know if that was ever put to the test. Um, I hope for everybody's sake it wasn't. <laughs> Perhaps but, if you um, had a heart play. attack at the controls of a light aircraft. There, well, would there be much to autopsy? I don't know. I don't. I haven't done those decades of study, so I'm not sure. Um, but also, you know, yeah, as Kuryakin and the Man from Uncle as well. He was my mum's childhood crush. So. Um, she she was very upset about this this week, but yeah, what what a career, what a guy, what a career, what a guy. But the music thing, we should, I think we should mention, mm-hmm. um, because this is one of the th- those things I knew, but then had kind of forgotten. But he was also a brilliant musician, and he made four albums in the sixties at the height of his kind of Man from Uncle fame. And one of the tracks from his second album is called "The Edge." It was sampled 
by Dr. Dre uh, as the uh, on the next episode. So it's very it's a very very famous sample. You'll absolutely know it if you hear it. And Edgar Wright used the song in Baby Driver, and it's just great. And I've been going and listening to some of the some of some of those albums, four albums he made, and they're just fucking great. They're all jazz instrumentals, but they're so good. Jats. Jats. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. It's very very sad. Presumably, Helen, you most love him for his role as Dr. Fonts Hendrix in Babylon 5. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. I actually did really love him as Ducky in NCIS. I think he's great. N- in that. We're all having this today, aren't we? NCIS. 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 Yes. Sapphire and Steel, by the way, he was Steel. Joanna Lumley was Sapphire. I, I honestly, even though it was a kind of in my sweet spot when I was growing up, uh, is a show that I haven't really seen that much of. So, but enough people have been raving about it on Twitter for me to go and want to check it out. As soon as, of course, I finished my NCIS rewatch. Of course. Mm. Uh, well, that won't take long. It won't take long at all. Uh, the great David McCallum, who passed away this week at the age of 90. All right, it's New Empire time. New it Empire is. Day was yesterday. It is indeed. The cover, of course, is Taylor Swift to celebrate the arrival of the year oh in cinemas on the 13th of October. James has been going around uh, every news agent in the country, sellotaping a picture of Taylor Swift to the cover of Empire. I mean, you know, it's a film. Why are you excited about this film? You're not even going to see this film, it's you accurate. crazy man. It's genuinely oh. accurate. I don't want to watch it. Anyway, but the cover is, of course, in fact, uh, David Fincher's Eras Tour. Sorry, uh, The Killer. Uh, with Michael Fassbender, and we've gone deep as well into some of his iconic shots. Talked through some yeah. of his uh, his favourite moments with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a look ahead at the Hunger Games, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. If you're excited about getting back into that world and uh, seeing a prequel of that, then boy, am I ever! I know you are, Chris. Above all, um, but it's another District Twelve champion versus um, Coriolanus Snow. Uh, Alfonso Cuarón is talking Gravity ten years later. Um, Really pulls you in that feature. <laughs> <laughs> we both came up with shit jokes simultaneously. Well, oh, yours, I didn't hear yours. I said it really pulls you in that feature. Oh, I boy. think mine was better. <laughs> yeah, was well, you would. I didn't hear either. I said uh, that's a bit of a come down because <laughs> of gravity. Uh, yes, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I dread to think what you're going to do with the title of the next film we feature, which was How to Have Sex. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, of course. There we go. The, that's how not to have sex, Chris. The, that's the Empire Gala. in my pants. Oh, God. Oh, boy. And and much more. You know, we've got a deep dive into Looney Tunes. Um, we've got a look at AI and the threat posed by it to background artists. Um, in in the first word section, we're looking ahead at Saltburn and Maestro and Next Goal Wins and Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget and Ferrari. We've got Nick Frost doing Pint of Milk. Uh, Chris, what's in your section? You've got Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse? Probably. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sounds good. Maybe yeah. a succession ranking? Sounds Yeah, that sounds plausible. And um, uh, yeah. anything else? There's loads of stuff in there. Loads of so many great things in my section. Um, I was kind of hoping the magazine preview would go into it in a bit more detail, so uh, it would jog the old noggin. But, um, but no, it has not. Uh, but I did talk to David Kep about Carlito's Way, which is one of my favourite films of all time. And it's 30 years old this year, which is terrifying. Uh, but David Kep is an amazing guy to talk to about that film. We talk about Sisu with the director, Jalmari Hellander, or Yalmari Hellander. Uh, yeah, 
there's great stuff in there. I and I wish I could remember what it was, but it's fantastic. I would definitely check it out. And if you do check it out, then please do tell me what's in it. <laughs> oh God. Marty, Gail Ann Hurd, lots of stuff. Great lots stuff. of great stuff. Lots of great stuff. There's a lot of great stuff. To quote Chris Evans, there's a lot of great stuff inside the issue. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's available right now. All good, evil, and virtual news agents. Pay your wages! You absolute molly funsters. Right. Another guest? Yes, please. Who do you want? Do you want Gareth Edwards or do you want Craig Gillespie? Actually, you know what? Let's have Gareth Edwards. All right. Because Craig Gillespie's film is already out, so we'll put it at the end, and we can go straight into the review section after talking to Gareth Edwards about his movie, The Creator, which sees the return of the British director after seven years away. His last film was Rogue One back in 2016. It's well documented what occurred on that film, that he perhaps, shall we say, wasn't necessarily allowed to finish it in the way that he he would have intended. And Tony Gilroy came in and led to Andor. Uh, and it set Gareth Edwards off on this path, which led to the creator. So I guess in the end, everybody is happy. But still, seven years is a long time to take away from movies. But as I discovered when I spoke with him this week in the London hotel room, it wasn't that he was necessarily licking his wounds after Rogue One. Other factors were in play. But he has responded with the creator, which is one of the most visually stunning pieces of sci-fi I've seen in many a year. Uh, and I'm very, 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 very glad that he's back. Here's Gareth Edwards. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Gareth Edwards, how are you? I think I'm okay. I think I'm all right. Are you sure? I'm not sure, no. <laughs> Why aren't you sure? Well, because this is the bit where you're about to give birth. You know what I mean? Like the film's about to come out and everyone's acting like nothing's happening. And it's like, you know, it feels like the jury's gone to make a verdict. Yeah, and so it's it's a it's an anxious moment so for the filmmaker gone to, the, to take yeah. the verdict. I mean, I'm either you're... gonna I'm either gonna win millions of dollars uh -huh. in compensation, or I'm gonna go to prison for the rest of my life. <laughs> What's more likely? Do you think? I would take a mid ground, <laughs> like kind of look. You're not gonna get any money, but you're also free. <laughs> okay, that's 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 all right. That's not too bad. Uh, you nervous on film release days? Is, is it traditionally? What did you do for Monsters, for example? Oh, there was never a def was there a definite moment? The the most nerve wracking moment on Monsters was the world premiere, right? Which was in South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Oh my god! And it was really weird because I didn't know what to expect, and it's at the Alamo um, yeah. Draft House Alamo. Yeah, and basically they serve food during the movie, <laughs> and so you can imagine, right? You spent like two years on something. And as you're playing your world premiere, waiters come in front of the screen and start asking people what they would want. Chicken fingers, chicken yeah. fingers. And people having conversations about the menu. And it's the world premiere. Shit. <laughs> and it's like, I wasn't ready for it. And I was just so like deflated because I thought, oh my God, you know, like what's happening? What did you order? Oh, I had chicken fingers. Yeah. Of course you did. <laughs> it's, it's the only way to go. The they only were way great, to go. Yeah. those chicken fingers. <laughs> I've never been. I've never been to an Alamo Draft House. I need to go. No, it's great, and and yeah. and it was funny because it you pr quickly blocked that out, and it went really. I mean, retrospectively, it was the. I was so lucky that it got in there. I don't mean to like bad mouth an amazing opportunity. <laughs> did I cover for that? I think you did. Yeah, I think you did. Uh, and what about uh, Godzilla and Rogue One? What what did you do for 
for um, those opening days, not not premieres, opening days. They didn't have chicken fingers at the Godzilla <laughs> premiere. It was very disappointing. <laughs> what was Godzilla? Oh yeah, oh god, you don't want to know this sort of stuff. This I is, do. of course, I do. You do? Okay. Yeah. So we were in France, and um, they basically they lift an embargo on the reviews and things like this. And so we were in France, and we went down through the Channel Tunnel, and the embargoes got lifted whilst we were like out of Wi-Fi signal. So basically we came up, we launched into England and suddenly all the reviews flooded in all at once. And you shouldn't look at them when you're a filmmaker because you're going to randomly pick something that's terrible, right? Right, yeah. And I think I did randomly pick something that was terrible and I was so depressed. And then they push you out into the crowd of Leicester Square to start doing like red carpet interviews. And the whole thing you're doing in your mind the entire time is like, just, oh my God, that person hated it, you know? And so it's it's like it's hard to focus. Yeah, it's like uh, someone you know someone could say ninety nine positive things about your movie. One person says one negative thing, and that's yeah. the thing you obsess on. It's like imagine you wore a coat out, right? You went out in this very nice coat, and someone went, "Oh, it's a nice coat," right? And you then you go down the corridor, and someone else goes, "Huh, where'd you get your coat?" And you're like, "Oh, it's from Burton's," you know. And then they go, <laughs> "Oh, I really like your coat." And then you walk out in the street and goes, "Oi, you wanker! You and your fucking stupid coat!" You know what I mean? You don't go, well, you know, I had three compliments so that, you know, I'm going to forget that guy. You go, what's his problem? You know what I mean? And so (laughs) it's like, it doesn't matter how many compliments you get. If someone says something negative, it it sticks a knife in. Yeah. And so I've, I've stopped looking. We have a deal with my girlfriend where um, I'm not allowed to look on the internet at anything. And if she sees something good, she'll screen grab it and send it to me. That sounds like a symptom of a bigger of a bigger problem here. <laughs> it is. There's like there's what I could you- pay that we could there's basically she's saving us ten thousand dollars in therapy <laughs> by doing this. Like we haven't got the money. That'd be amazing. If I wasn't allowed to look at the internet, I don't know what I'd do with myself. I might be creative. I might, I might do something with my life. Jesus Christ. It's I've quite- had the pivot. Thanks, Gareth. This has been fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm off. I am off. Um, all right. So, so you don't know what people are saying about the creator. No. Spoiler alert. It's good stuff. No. Someone's told me not to look. Okay. <laughs> and that made me worry. <laughs> what are you going to do on opening day? Okay, as I can in, say this because is this coming out before? This is com- we're coming out on Friday, so it's coming out the day after. So if you're, say- gonna, if you're going to streak naked through Leicester right. Square, then you know, people I will know. I can say this. I won't give away too much information, but because we couldn't have a premiere with the actors, yeah. I bought a stack of tickets to a cinema somewhere and invited all the actors, and we're all going to watch it together and then go to some bar or nightclub and get absolutely shit-faced. <laughs> So I presume that you're going to be going going back to LA then. I, I presume. Yeah, you, you've gone all Hollywood in the in the interim. No, <laughs> no. You. I feel really bad talking about that because this is where you feel like you betrayed your country. You're allowed to move. It's, got, it's really nice weather. Countries. It's yeah. really nice weather. It's like being in Spain, but they speak English. Yeah, that's how I sell it to English people because <laughs> everyone goes to Spain, right? No one's got a problem with that. Listen, I did the LA thing. For, I did it for I did it for a year. Oh, you did. I, uh, yeah. What made you leave? Back. Uh, had no money. <laughs> Genuinely, you, basically, you failed. I failed. <laughs> so I came crawling back to Empire. Yeah, with my cap in my hand, and they yeah. took pity on me, and here yeah. I am, fourteen. And now years you're later. stuck doing podcasts with doing idiots. Podcasts. Yeah, and eventually working myself around to asking a question about the movie. Have I gone long enough that I don't have to talk about the film? Do you want to? No, like, I don't know. we can talk about it. I want to talk about the, the film, the, the genesis of the movie, because. I, I've read a lot of interviews with you about uh, about this movie, and I did a Q and A with you last night. And literally, the first question you got asked from an audience member was about Rogue One. And <laughs> but 
you were already kind of moving on to this film in 2018. So this wasn't a, it's seven year gap between this movie and Rogue One. But yeah. it wasn't a case of the experience in Rogue One soiled you on movies and you took some time off. You were already plowing forward. Yeah, I think, well, you know, I needed a break. Um, I actually developed four of the films. I know four films in total. One of them was this. Right. Um, and so this one was the first one um, where it felt like I was going to get control over the process. Like the process to me is as important as the idea, yeah. you know, to some extent. Like, um, And yeah, it was like, you know, that saying, um, go big or go home. Yes. Sometimes it means you have to go home. And so I went home a lot <laughs> where I would go to meetings and you could, your spidey sense tingles and you just go, this is not going to end well. I'm going to get a lot of notes, you, a lot of... You just read the room and go, I'm yeah. not sure these are the right people to make that film with. Yeah. And so I was just waiting for the right opportunity and New Regency um, were fantastic. Like genuinely, I know people go on publicity tours and try to say nice things about the people they work with, but I really kept waiting for the moment they were going to give us the terrible studio note and ruin the movie. And they never did. Like we had a lot of freedom. It was like quite incredible. What was it about the creator or true love as it was back then that that put it to the start of the the starting grid for you? You have these four other films. Were they all roughly at the same stage of development? No. I make okay. it sound like everyone was beating my door down. They weren't. <laughs> I was try I was beating their door down for half yeah. the time. I was um uh I had written this and developed it as as this kind of hybrid all the benefits of a small indie movie mixed with all the benefits of a giant blockbuster, like trying to find this sweet spot in the middle thing. And and it looked at the time, it didn't play out to be this, but it looked at the time that I had been pursuing a more franchisey thing that I really wanted to do that for a big studio, but it was clear I wasn't going to get that process. I was going to go back into the, mm -hmm. the normal way of making films. And I sort of thought, I don't want to do this. Like, I want my next film to be something I've got control over a lot more. And so I didn't tell my agents or anybody, and I just kept it a secret. But I called up, um, or I texted Michael Schaefer, because he had, over the period of, like, since Star Wars, I went for a meal with him. You do a few meals with people, and you don't know if it's bullshit or they really mean it, but they're yeah. like, hey, I'd love to make a movie with you. You know what I mean? And most people don't follow through. And he kept like nudging me, like, remember, we're going to, you know, you could come and have creative freedom here. And so I just did like a Hail Mary tweet, uh, sort of text to him and said, hey, Michael, like, I'm about to go, looks like I'm about to be pushed into doing a big studio film, but I, I would love to do this other movie. Do you, would you want to hear about it? And he's like, okay, come in tomorrow. And Yarif, who runs New Regency with him, they both came in and I had all this artwork. I'd sort of, like my best friends are concept artists and I'd sort of um, hassled them to create all this imagery. And we had about 50 images and I just basically sat there and put out all the images, told them the story, had a, a first draft of the screenplay that I left with them and um, walked away. And then they turned around the next day, I think, and called and said, we're really excited. We want to do it. And that doesn't mean anything. A lot of people say that and you don't actually get any money and nothing actually happens. Um, and so I had to call my agents and go like, I've been a bit naughty. <laughs> uh, and they were like, if that's you being naughty, Gareth, please be naughty all the time. <laughs> and, and so I was like, yeah, they want to do this movie. And 
And so then it became a game of like, A, improving the screenplay. Yeah. And then B, um, trying to prove that we could make this movie the, the way I wanted to make it. And we sort of, I wouldn't say we tricked them, but we, there's always this fear that when someone says they want to make a film with you, they don't mean it, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone's all talk. And so they, we knew they were going to drip feed us some money. They give us a token amount of money for something, right? Because that's like the beginning of the relationship. Like that's the date, you know, and they're going to buy us a meal. Okay. So we were like, look, what we want to do is let's go on a, a location scout. And so I got um, Jim Spencer, who was the producer on Monsters to be the producer on this as well. Um, Cause I knew that he would understand the gorilla approach. Yes. And so it was like, just me and him, we just went off on this, like, I mean, to be honest, this amazing holiday <laughs> where we went to like Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, uh, Tokyo, Nepal, Indonesia. Wow. And I took a camera with me and, and a cinema lens, a 1970s anamorphic thing. So it looked really cool. And, and just shot a load of material and tested these new gimbals and drone stuff, you know, that's like one man band type equip prosumer equipment. And then, and then cut together like an eight minute piece set to like Hans Zimmer and these like, you know, Mozart and weird shit like that. And then went to, um, industrial light magic and said, you know, I didn't put any dots on anyone. I just filmed farmers and, and, and monks walking into temples and, and don't have any of the data you're supposed to have all those silver balls and things. You didn't do plate. You didn't do plates. You didn't no, do that sort of thing. didn't do anything. Yeah. And it was like, I, can we just do this? And they were like, okay. And so they kind of like for a very small amount of money, we worked backwards. So we did it a bit like monsters in that sense. Um, once we had the final shot, we kind of painted like James Klein, who was the production designer, kind of painted very loose, like we'd spend about 10 minutes on an image, very loose ideas of what the distant background could look like. And then we would hand that to ILM and there'd be someone whose job it was to make that look photo real by just tidying it up. And then that would get projected onto like simple geometry. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly we had shots that looked like, um, actually in the movie, there were shots that looked like big mega sci-fi cities. Um, done in, normally that would take months. They were just done in like a few days. And so they were really like caught off guard with, actually this works and looks really cool. They haven't thought to try it this way before. Um, or maybe they had and they I hadn't don't know. worked I mean, out. They, or- it was maybe it's it's really scary to to say you can do that because yeah. it takes it takes a real leap of faith and and the director could make your life a living hell if they then said I want to see it from the side they go we haven't built it from the side it's just this angle yeah. there's no more left or right or anything else and so so um they they did that and we showed that short to um, New Regency and it went down really well they knew how little they'd given us and they were like hang on you made that with that. And we were like, yeah, and we can do a two-hour movie. And and it was just like a no-brainer at that point. They were like, oh, we're in, you know, uh, let's green light the movie kind of thing. Bloody hell. <laughs> that is wild. I mean, in terms of the, the time you go into New Regency and you have 50 examples of concept art, what was the the key piece of concept art for you or the, or the key thing about this movie that that sold them on it or sold you on it even? Um, my favorite thing, well, actually, you know, it was a, sh- so it's the concept art, probably similar thing to, there's a shot in that test that everybody talked about that was so compelling. And it was basically, I was in a paddy field in Indonesia and I was just filming some farmers. This guy was pl- plowing the land. I was filming loads of things. And then just happened, this guy was smoking a cigarette 
And I just started filming him. I didn't speak to him. I was just like doing it like a weirdo. And he wasn't too annoyed, but he would just, he was smoking this cigarette. He was looking ultra cool. He had a really interesting face, like from a Sergio Leone film or something. And then he just looked at me like, why are you filming? And he gave me this (laughs) look and I just kept filming and I was smiling like, all right. And he kind of looked at me and then he just looked back again and smoked a cigarette. He thought a bit and he was like contemplative. Then he just looked at me again like, you still filming? And and we used this clip. We got we got him to sign a waiver yeah. and paid him and everything. But um, we used this clip and then made him into a simulant where his, his, a hole in his head is missing. And so the clip was he's looking at us smoking a cigarette, like really wondering what we're up to. And then turns away and you see a hole right through his head, like in the movie. And everyone was like, there was something about that performance because it wasn't a performance. It was a documentary kind of moment Yeah, that everyone was like, oh my God, that's so human, but it's AI or something that made everyone like, I've not seen that before. And that was kind of like what we were offering for the movie is like, the, these are going to be robots that are completely natural, that are not like, you know, acting like robots. They're just, and to the point where when we started filming the movie, for a lot of the background i'd stop telling people if they were ai or not because i wanted that naturalism of like the more someone was slumped in the corner bored you know smoking or playing cards or whatever they were doing the more i wanted to make them a robot like the better the performance the the more it was like oh this would be so cool (laughs) if they're ai i want to ask uh, very very quickly about the state of play of the those other three films were were they all sci-fi by the way the ones you were developing at the same time oh um Correct. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Nothing, Sorry. Nothing wrong with that, Gareth. It's it's exciting. Uh, what is next for you now that you've got you've got to this point where you're you're waiting for the jury to come back and? Well, if I don't go to prison, <laughs> if you go to prison, which I don't think you will, um, and I and um, I just want to. I really and this is my favorite part of the whole thing is when you stop and and you go on holiday or you go traveling or you just have a normal life again. And you listen to music, you maybe read some books, look at whatever it is, photography, anything, watch films, and just stuff turns up in your brain, like it just arrives. And and I love that, like, and I don't want to preempt it. I think it's sort of sad to go, you know what I'm going to do next is this. Mm-hmm. I had that straight after Godzilla. I knew I was doing Star Wars before it even ended. Yeah. I kind of, you know, I, I depended, if it was a box office flop, I wouldn't have got to do Star Wars, I yeah. American. But um. And so, and I didn't like the fact there was no gap, you know what I mean? It was hard. And so um, I'm really looking forward to just listening to music, walking around, just, hey, and, it, and if and nothing ever comes, then it doesn't. I've, and then there's those three other things that I might lean on a bit, but, and, and others too, like when you want to make films, you carry a whole load of ideas in your back pocket. Yeah. And, but I just don't, I'm not, I'm not in any rush. <laughs> Fair enough, but just don't make it seven years next time. That's I'll all, try not all I'm to. Gonna say. All I'm gonna Depends say. on the jury. <laughs> Depends on the jury. Uh, Gareth Edwards, thanks so much, man. Thank you. Okay, so that was Gareth Edwards, and now let's get into the reviews section of the show. And let's start with the creator, shall we, folks? Yeah. Jimbo. Yes. This is very, very exciting, not just to have Gareth back, but also to have that very unusual thing, which is a brand new, non-IP, completely original vision, especially in a sci-fi setting. So this one stars John David Washington as Joshua, uh, and he is sort of set in a futuristic dare I say, dystopian world after a nuclear attack in Los Angeles has caused America to ban all artificial intelligence. Meanwhile, the kind of 
confederated states of new asia are all about the ai they're very much a home to ai and that seems to be where a lot of the machines have congregated so then you have a war between the east and the west centered around ai so this is a story that's very much grounded in the headlines it's very much relevant to what we're talking about today and john david washington plays uh, an american agent who's on the hunt for shall we say almost like the robot messiah their creator called namata and that's essentially how this kicks off I mean, the thing about this film that absolutely floors me is it cost 80 million dollars which is a lot of money let's not fuck about but this film looks so much more expensive than that it is one of the most visually arresting films i think i've ever seen and it kind of really throws into perspective how much these very expensive films do not look good in mm-hmm. that you can spend three, four, five hundred million on a film and it not look as good as this film. And I, you know, I, I'm sure Gareth talks an awful lot about the reasons for that, but it is a, an extraordinary blending of wonderful location shooting and very subtle, artfully done CGI, which leads into, I would say, I was going to say the George Lucas style, probably not of CGI, but it's more his used universe aesthetic, the way all of the technology in this feels very lived in. It feels very worn. And I think this world really sucks you in. So, yeah, I think it's a beautiful vision of you know, what the future could be and a refreshing take on this particular story, this sort of AI versus humanity story. I don't want to give away any spoilers. I don't want to go into too many details there, but it goes in unexpected directions. It does interesting things. Great central performance from from John David Washington and also an incredibly good performance from Madeline Univoyles in her first role who plays a young girl simulant who's like a robot who looks like a human uh, and she is essentially a kind of a, an almost like a, a holy robot figure and you get this lone wolf and cub mechanic as Joshua and Alfie for that is the robot child's name uh, try and tra- traverse this sort of new Asian wilderness while not being killed by A humans or B robots uh, Alice and Janney my beloved Alice and Janney is in here cast somewhat against type and in a spectacular role as an ornery American colonel uh, Uh, She's fantastic. Gemma Chan is in here as well. Um, The thing about this film is it is great. It looks beautiful. It's compelling. It's wonderful. Uh, If I were to make any criticisms of it, I would say sometimes there's a little bit of hand-waving in the storytelling. Some of the plot ratchets don't feel like they've been tightened quite enough. I wonder whether it's because this was cut for time. It's quite a long film as it is. It's over two hours. It feels like there was maybe more that they had to lose, where, where you lose some of the texture and explanation for it. But honestly, it, do, it doesn't hurt the film at all. Uh, I thought this was absolutely wonderful. And it made me realise how much I miss, especially in a science fiction space, original non-IP-based stuff, like original visions of the future. Yeah. Just absolutely wonderful. It's one of these things, just go and see it. Even if it's not your bag, go and see it, because there's not enough of this stuff being made, and more of it should be made. Uh, some people, some wags might say, it's curious, given what a bad time Gareth had on Rogue One, that at times this almost feels like a stealth remake. There is a Death Star in it, kind of. Um, but yeah, the creator, great film. We gave this four stars, very well deserved. Yeah, I'm, I pretty much agree with all of that. I think it's a, I think it's a gorgeous film, and I think we absolutely need more of them. I have some nits to pick, which I will in the spoiler special. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, I, I thought it was beautifully, beautifully done. And yes, those two central performances, fantastic. Also, good support from Ken Watanabe, who, yes. who turns up um, always glorious. Ken Watanabe, always glorious, but particularly, particularly good here. Um, and yeah, I think, I think you're right, James. It's not interested really in the nitty gritty of the technology. Actually, it's interested mm. in what it says about us is humanity. This to me is not actually a story about AI. It's a, a story about humanity and and all the wrongs we're doing to each other. And actually the first time I saw it, I got really quite 
depressed, not because it wasn't a great film, I think more because it was, but just because I think it says some things about, it looks at some quite bleak truths about how we treat each other and also the planet and also, you know, emerging um, people maybe or emerging things, ideas. Um, and so, so I did, I, did, I find it actually really, really emotionally affecting. Mm. I sh don't let that put you off. I, I'm not saying I was like thrown into a chasm by this, but <laughs> just it really did make me think about things quite deeply um, because it's a very well made film. Um, so yeah, really beautiful, beautiful looking stuff. Proper big sci fi uh, ideas in there as well, and just and settings and images uh, straight off the cover of a 1960s pulp novel at, at times. Just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, fully agreed with all of that. Can't wait to get into into this in the spoiler special. I talked to Gareth Edwards for a spoiler special, not a hugely long interview, uh, but loads of interesting things were said during it. And um, yeah, hopefully that'll be recorded in the next week or so, and then we can get it up after that. Um, but yeah, four stars for the creator, visually, just on a different level. The first hour of this movie, I thought I was watching one of my favorite sci-fi films of all time. And then it does slightly lose momentum in the second half once all the plot stuff kicks in. But on an emotional level, it works. So, yeah, exciting stuff. Welcome back, Gareth. Just don't make it seven years next time. <laughs> all right. Four stars there for that. And as Gareth Edwards returns, Ken Loach leaves. The Old Oak is Ken Loach's final film. That's what he says. Anyway, he's retiring. He's hanging up the... <laughs> the jacket with the corduroy patches that I once saw him wearing an M&S class warrior <laughs> Ken Loach shopping in M&S folks uh, anyway <laughs> I saw him shopping in Forbidden Planet I've told you this before I really? literally ran into Ken Loach in Forbidden Planet on Tottenham Court Road when it was on Tottenham Court Road I suspect he wandered in there by mistake thinking it was CNA <laughs> anyway the old oak yes the old oak yeah, this. I mean, honestly, I'll believe it's his last film at some later date because you know we've we've been through this with Miyazaki, for example, and you know I'll believe it's his last <laughs> film when Steven I hear Sorberg. it because he still feels as as fired up and as passionate as ever in this film. So uh, this stars uh, Dave Turner as TJ, who's the owner of a pub in a small town in County Durham. Um, as you might expect, if you know anything about. British history and County Durham. It's a town that has been facing economic hardship ever since basically they closed the mines. And so there's a lot of people out of work, a lot of people struggling, particularly now with the, you know, well, the Tories in charge, let's be honest. Um, and into this town um, come a couple of busloads of refugees, Syrian refugees who are fleeing the war, who have been put into empty council houses in this area. Um, and there's a lot of kind of unrest, there's a lot of kind of uh, resentment of this in the town. Why are we helping these people when we're not even helping ourselves kind of a thing? Why, why are they getting help when we also need help? That kind of thinking. But TJ is not one of those people. He is quietly trying to do his best. He is quietly trying to lend a hand. Um, he, he's a very lonely guy and you sense that there's a lot of you know other stuff in his life that isn't going well. So he's at least trying to reach out to other people. And in particular, he kind of forms a bond with Yara, who's played by Ebla Mari, who is a young woman, a young Syrian woman who is a photographer, wants to get back to photography, but she's also trying to help her family get through, find out what's happened to her father who's been left behind and so on. And and really, this is, this is a... a kind of classic Ken Loach, you know, well, polemic, first of all, there's a lot of, there's a bit of speechifying, there's a bit of people saying the subtext out loud, um, <sighs> but there's also a lot of solidarity. This is about a community coming together and realising that they can help each other, that they can, you know, contribute to each other. Um, 
that they are stronger together than they would be apart and that the, the problems are not coming from your fellow poor people. Your The problems are coming from, you know, the Tories. I mean, the rich. Um, I mean, just, you know, society. But uh, but look, it's, it's, it's a really nicely done piece. And there's some beautiful, beautiful character work, particularly from Turner as TJ, who I thought was really, really affecting. But Yara and her whole family get really kind of... Um, beautiful moments as well. So yeah, I thought this was good. We gave it three stars, which I think is is probably right. It's very much a, if you like this sort of thing, you'll like this, um, rather than this is for everyone. Everybody should go see it. Mm. But, um, but you know, the world might be better if certain people uh, in government did go and see this. Oh, I'm sure they will. <laughs> I'm sure they I'm sure they're queuing up for the next Ken Loach film, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, love, beautiful, beautifully done. And, um, and yeah, certainly its politics are right on as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Other politics are, of course, available. Absolutely. Uh, three stars then for the old oak. Let's move on uh, to No One Will Save You, Jimbo. Yes, indeed. Which is not a dark threat against you, but it's also the film directed <laughs> by Brian Duffield, which, he, which debuted last week on Disney Plus and Hulu it did. in the States. It just dropped in there, as these things have a tendency to do. Uh, this is one of those films, again, I think that it, you're going to watch it on your TV and kind of wish you'd probably seen it in the cinema. Uh, but yes, this is Brian Duffield's film, and it is most notable for its headline characteristic is there are, throughout this entire film, which is 93 minutes long, there are five words of dialogue in the entire film which seems initially like a bit of a gimmick but actually it works extremely well so this is a story of caitlin diva's character uh whose name is Bryn, and she lives in a small town where she's lived in for most of her life and she shall we say has an unfortunate relationship with her neighbors in that she is shunned by her entire community nobody talks to her nobody acknowledges her everyone is mean to her uh the reasons for this are not instantly apparent but do become so later on but she lives life in her house very quietly making her own clothes teaching herself to dance leading a very lonely but generally quite happy existence until aliens invade um and essentially this is an alien invasion movie it's a haunted house movie it's a cabin in the woods movie it's all of these things rolled into one and it kind of shifts between these various slightly horror i would kind of would i call this a horror no i guess it's more of a, a kind of a tense thriller isn't it it's uh, uh but it's basically her hiding from aliens a lot of the way uh, a lot of the way through and what they've actually done which i found fascinating about this is they've taken that classic gray alien the x-files alien the non-threatening spindly alien and made it a, threatening, dangerous, and interesting, but done really, really interesting things with it in terms of physicality, uh, the way they move, and specifically the way they sound. The sound design in this is absolutely on point. It's really, really, really good. Um, it's an exceptionally well-made film. As I say, it's only 93 minutes. It's quite taut, but with no dialogue, you know, that still could have gone very wrong, especially because you're relying on those moments from something like A Quiet Place where it's you're hiding from the scary thing in the house, but you are dragging it out over the entirety of the film because there's no, you know, dialogue-driven story to, to fall back on. But we find out more about her. We find out more about the aliens. There's a whole body snatchers vibe in there as well. It kind of broadens out. And it comes to a very unexpected conclusion, which I really enjoyed as well. And I think, if anything, this really showcases what Caitlin Deaver's capable of. Because a completely dialogue-free performance, it's entirely physical. And yet, not only do you really, really 
feel that you understand that character. You really get inside her head. But her whole history kind of plays out uh, through a variety of non-spoken devices. Uh, and it's really touching. And it actually gives you a real insight into, you know, her psyche and her trauma as well through the medium of, of Alien Invasion. So, yeah, <laughs> I, th- I mean, it's, it's, a real, it's a real sort of surprise this film is because it's original and it feels different. And it's a mm. really sort of bold, big swing. It won't be for everyone, I don't think. Uh, and I think certainly, you know, it, it's you kind of have to get past the no dialogue thing. Like, because if you do see it as a gimmick, it could get irritating. But actually, I think it serves this particular story and this particular method of storytelling very well. So, yeah, I thought this was, I thought it was really good. It's another one we gave four stars to, which I wholeheartedly endorse. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I liked. It. I did find the 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 gimmick a little bit stretched a couple of times. I thought there were a couple of scenes where you know somebody could have said something um and that i wouldn't have been mad at it for for that also, to be honest i also think it's weird that the five words that are said in the film are it's not chats it's jizz which i thought was <laughs> oh, unusual wasn't expecting that yeah. at least yeah well it's yeah, keeping it sci-fi you know um parking back to sci-fi classics <laughs> no one will save you monster asshole um, <laughs> but no it's um her performance is is astonishing, and yes, it it definitely has some big swings and some big ideas there. Mm. Um, I yeah, I'm still a bit creeped out by it, to be honest. Yeah, it is creepy. Mm. We had Brian Duffield on the show last week, and he's a fascinating guy. We were talking about doing a spoiler special for this. I haven't had time to set that up, but I'm going to try and set it up for next week or the week after. So, uh, hopefully, we can do a spoiler special for No One Will Save You as well, because there's a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. Four stars for that one. So Wes Anderson's The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar is a 40-minute short film starring Benedict Cumberbatch, which is on Netflix, and that's what Wes Anderson will be on the show next week to talk about, which is very, very exciting indeed. Uh, it's 40 minutes long. It's not technically a full-length feature film. Hell's Bells? Yeah, look, Henry Sugar is is lovely. I think it continues Wes Anderson's kind of exploration of story and storytelling and creativity and art, um, because it has a, a a very clever, complicated framing device involving Roald Dahl and the story within a story and the story within that story, um, then setting up the you know, the story of Henry Sugar himself. So I I just thought, I was just fascinated throughout. I think it's beautifully done, a mixture of, I, th- I think, practical sets and a bit of CG where, where necessary, where it would have been maybe too expensive to do it all practically, but really clever, sort of a tiny ensemble cast playing all the parts and um, and stagehands going in and out with with bits of business. And, um, and then the story of Henry Sugar, told pretty faithfully as I remember the book. Um, but I, I loved this. I thought it was just beautiful. Hats off. Very much of a piece with um, with his last two films, with The Friends Dispatch and Asteroid, Asteroid City. City. Yeah. yeah. Exciting stuff. I can't wait to see it. I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. Uh, and I'm delighted to see that he's made a short film again. So that's good. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we've reviewed it or not, but I think we have actually. We haven't given it four we stars. Have, yeah, we yeah. have given it four yeah. stars. Have you given four stars, though, to Saw 10 or Saw X? I don't know how you're pronouncing it. Saw X, I think. I don't know. Yeah, this is... Point. <laughs> so after the Saw kind of spin-off spiral, which was Saw 9, uh, this takes us back to John Kramer, Jigsaw, aka played by Tobin Bell. And this is actually a sequel to Saw and I think a prequel to everything else. That's right. This tells the story of how he came to live next to Jerry Seinfeld. 
Sure. So this tells oh, sorry, the story of how he um, he's you know as we we know from if you if you know Saw two and Saw three you'll know he had cancer and was uh, dying of it. Uh, so in this one he has been diagnosed. He's in his last few months of life, but he hears about this radical new treatment available in uh, just across the border in Mexico because of course big pharma doesn't want this radical new treatment to work, so they have to travel around and offer this in secret and. Jigsaw, a man known for doing enormous amounts of research and discovering facts about people that they have hidden from literally everyone, uh, does pretty much one Google and calls it a day and decides that he should go to this clinic and get treated. Now, this is not a spoiler because it's in the trailer and it's the basic premise of the film. The treatment is a lie. Uh, and unfortunately for the staff and support crew of this clinic, they've chosen to try to dupe John Jigsaw Kramer. <laughs> Um, and that is not going to go well for them. I don't think it's uh, a spoiler to say. So uh, John, you know, builds a couple of, puts a couple of machines together, kidnaps a couple of people um, with the help of his pupil Amanda Shawnee Smith, who's back, and uh, and soon the the clinic staff are yes. in for a very bad day. They're led by Cecilia, who's played by Sinevi Makodi Lund. Um, she's do you remember she was in Headhunters? Yes. She's oh, yes. the world's most beautiful film critic, apart yes. from ourselves, of course. Apart from you know. ourselves. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so she's she's pretty formidable. She's kind of the, the, the closest he gets to an opponent. This is directed by Kevin Grissart, who has directed, I think, now three Saw films after editing, I think, seven or eight at least. Um, and he has maybe gotten a little bit too close to Kramer um, because... While it is obviously normal to have sympathy for a dying man who has also been defrauded out of money, yes. maybe the film, for me, goes a little bit too far in having sympathy for Jigsaw rather than literally anyone else. So I didn't love that about it. I also really had questions, and look, this is not a spoiler, this is just the premise of the whole Saw franchise. Like He, he, he invents these incredibly convoluted, delicate machines, and none of them ever malfunction. Like... And all of them work exactly as they should, in theory. I, I find it really astonishing. Anyway, so I I just didn't love it. I didn't I think if you're a Saw fan, you can probably add a star, but for me it was a two-star film. It is gross. There is self-surgery, there is sadism, you know, all of that is present and correct. There's very nasty traps, there's some scary bits. Um, but I, I kind of wanted there to be something else, I guess. I wanted there to be maybe an examination of Jigsaw's absolute moralism. I wanted there to be some challenge maybe to him. I certainly didn't want him to be essentially the good guy of this film, but mm. that's just me. I just, I, 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 these films upset me because like Saw in and of itself, obviously to a certain extent kick-started this whole torture porn genre, didn't it really? Uh, or certainly the trend, the more recent trend for it. And it's like, it's actually a really clever, well done, taut rug pull thriller. And then all the subsequent films have just degenerated into just shock value and it's just really lazy filmmaking and i i, I dislike them intensely i'm glad that 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 trend seems to have abated mm. but there, there is i mean there is a thriller element here but yeah I, I i don't think it's completely gotten back to the elegance of the first film for sure yeah. i think the first three are are really good and then i could take a leave every pretty much everything that comes after that mm. although i know that saws four through eight a lot of them have their defenders but yeah Two stars then for Saw X slash 10. Um, and that's it, I think. That's it, isn't it? I think so. We've played Jigsaw's last infernal game and that is it for this week's Badger-filled 
jizz-packed episode oh, no. of the Empire Podcast. Uh, badgers and jizz everywhere, mm. as it should be. Join us next week for more film-related fun. When we'll be joined by well, Wes Anderson for one. We're also going to be joined by David Gordon Green, talking about his latest horror reboot, requel, whatever the hell you want to call it, Exorcist Believer or Lit Exorcist Believer. It is the return of Ellen Burstyn as uh, Chris McNeil after fifty years. Fifty years. So it's going to be exciting to see how that one turns out. And there may be someone else in the mix because I usually overbook these things. <laughs> no. Case in I don't point this week. <laughs> anyway, we have one more guest before we wrap this bad boy up. Um, and it is Craig Gillespie, who's the director of Dumb Money, which tells the story of how some intrepid normal people tried to stop Wall Street from essentially shorting which I understand, having seen The Big Short about 12 times, uh, GameStop <laughs> stock in 2021. Uh, but then the machine, the man, rose up and tried to crush the little people. Uh, and it is a really interesting, really funny, really engrossing financial drama that, maybe, who knows, may well join Margin Call and The Big Short on my rewatchability list. Uh, we shall see. But uh, Craig Gillespie, the director of Cruella and I, Tonya and Pam and Tommy, is a man in charge this time. And even though he was in London last week, and even though I'd hosted a Q&A with him for the Empire VIP Club just the night before, we couldn't be in the same room at the same time this time around. So this was on Zoom. Enjoy. Craig, I'm always transfixed by your caps. You have a, People can't see this right now, but you have an incredible collection of, of wonderful <laughs> caps. I do, I do. They've become like a almost like a security blanket it's like it, it just it's it's good to keep focus it's like when i'm walking it's like you know, it's almost like having blinders on um <laughs> and i can just like be very focused and good for taking naps they just come in handy <laughs> well i'm not to get started off in the caps but where did this start for you do you have a collection of caps do you because you, you're wearing a completely different one now than you were last night when we did a, a q a I do. It's like uh, they tend to uh, they tend to start coming your way when you wear them. People start giving them as gifts. <laughs> it just starts expanding. Um, but yeah, definitely, there's a style that's going on that uh, works for me. It's very cool. It's a very very good style. So I might start trying it myself and see whether people just throw caps at me or maybe <laughs> upgrade. It yeah. takes years, years of perseverance before that happens. <laughs> I want to be known as the Ferrari guys. So people would just start sending me Ferraris. Just drive around in Ferraris a lot. And see. Yeah, just borrow a Ferrari because obviously I can't afford a Ferrari. I work for Empire. <laughs> I'm not really in cash. Anyway, the, the, we we spoke a lot about this movie last night in the Q and A that um, was fascinating. The film itself is fascinating as well. And one of the things that really intrigues me about it is how immediate a response this film is to the GameStop short <laughs> short stock. I can't even say it. Anyway, to to the whole thing. <laughs> Which happened in January 2021. There was, yes, absolutely. It was, uh, there was a sort of, there was an immediacy to it that we wanted to capture because this was so resonant right now. And it was, a, it was a movement that happened during COVID. And COVID is still, we're so familiar with. Obviously, it was such an intense time. It was, you know, the alienation going on, the lack of employment, the loss of life. I mean, we've never experienced anything like this. So, Having the opportunity to revisit that and look at it under the lens of of also the social context of the disparity of wealth that was going on and the real frustration. And that's what led to this movement, this uh, 
it ended up being 8 million followers on Wall Street Bets, which is a Reddit forum that just went off to Wall Street. And they realized if they could like, all rally around the stock, it would really hit Wall Street where it hurts, which is, you know, right in the wallet for them. <laughs> which is fascinating as well, because, you know, I, I think a lot of people have made comparisons. And I, I, I'd say, you know, you, you could see where they're coming from with the big short. The big short is interesting because it comes at it from a completely different point of view. The character is completely different. It's almost asking you to root for the guys who are trying to, you know, they're trying you, to game I, the system. It's, it's, it's kind of like rooting for the bank robbers, the big shot. It's like you're, yeah. you're rooting for people that are inherently on the wrong side of of the law so to speak but uh not not to imply that these i mean there there is certainly some uh some interesting dubious stuff going on within gamestop with the hedge funds but in this case it's it's from the outside in it's from like the average person looking to get in on the wall street uh market and that's the difference it's like every the previous things we actually briefly looked at the big short but it's such a different perspective wolf of wall street again it's like the insiders the stock traders like they like really going for it this is the chance where we see the average person get to, to really make a buck and stick it to like the one percenters and and show that frustration at the same time and there's something really satisfying in that there's a there's a lovely point we were we were discussing the movie on our podcast um my colleague made a really, really interesting point, which is that, you know, everybody, the the have-nots of the movie, your Keith Gills, you know, uh, 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 America's character, they're always wearing masks and they're always being told, Anthony Ramos's character is always being told by Dane DeHaan to put his mask back on. Exactly. You get to the likes of Gabe Plotkin, who's played by Seth Rogen, you get to the likes of, uh, of Ken Griffin, who's played by uh, Nick Offerman. These guys are not wearing masks. Other people around them are wearing masks, but they're not. And just little little things like that. They're really, really yeah. sharp observations, really set it apart. It was amazing, like, you know, even within that, obviously, the social commentary that COVID had, you know, with the essential workers, with the people that were out there really risking their lives and the people that um, didn't have to. And it's, it's like, it was definitely, there was a class system involved. It's like, obviously, the staff around the... Uh, around the Melvin Capital people, it's like, you know, they have to wear masks. It's part of the protocols. We show a party in Florida. There are no masks happening in Florida. It was like, you know, it goes state by state. So it was it was a very, very uh, you know, volatile, emotional conversation around COVID and masks in America. Yeah, and it's it's so recent as well, but I can imagine it must have been surreal. It's not a pandemic movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it is absolutely... It is takes place during the pandemic. It takes place at the, at the height of COVID. I got some trauma flashbacks from just watching people on public transport having to sit five feet away from someone else in a meeting. All of that stuff. It must be surreal to kind of bring to bring to the big screen. Well, you know, it's it's so recent that we're not wearing masks. It's, we were still in COVID when we shot this. Yeah. You know, we're still all masked up. So. And so it's interesting. It's almost so quickly how we forget the intensity of it, but it doesn't take much for it to be brought back to you in a very visceral way. And we even have this very short montage in the film, but just to remind people of the context of, of, of where everybody was emotionally. And it's only, it's only like 60 seconds long, but you get to see the empty classrooms, the empty streets, the, the Black Lives Matter like movements, people all in, in you know the empty shelves in the grocery stores, all these like very very visceral reminders of just how intense it was. To go back to that question, I, I was asking about the immediacy of dumb money. It, you know, was there a part of you that thought, are we going too quickly? 
into this? Do we need, do we need no. to wait a little longer to have some perspective on on everything, or do we just go I don't, straight? I think, I think it was it was such a moment, uh, and it was during COVID, and they really felt like there was a completion to it in the sense that we got to get to the congressional hearing with main character Keith Gill. And the aftermath of that congressional hearing, including a couple of uh, lawsuits that happened a couple of months later, all of that makes it into the film. And it gives you a conclusion that really sort of argues for a real voice of change, and particularly what happened in that moment and and uh, and what happened at Congress. So in that sense, I think it couldn't be said enough. So your son was actually uh, part of this this movement as well. He was, uh, I got to live through this vicariously through him, which I think was my conduit in how to get into this story because he was on Wall Street Bets early on and uh, constantly giving me updates on what was happening and, and the movements that were happening. Elon Musk just tweeted, game stomped and the stock just jumped 8%. You know, uh, Mark Cuban just tweeted about it. It's like you started to feel like the movement getting larger and larger. And then in this two weeks in particular that we focus on in the film, it started to really skyrocket. And it went from $20 a share to $400 a share in two weeks. Um, and the intensity of the, you know, the people following that and trying to decide when they're going to get out, if they're going to get out in time, because it was this collective movement that had to hang on to it because the more that they didn't sell, the higher the stock was going. Uh, so that, that intensity, like checking the phone every three minutes, checking pre-markets, checking what's going on in Europe, you know, at three in the morning, it was um, it was it was a very stressful household. And he managed to sell right at the right time, got out perfectly. The next day, Robinhood put a freeze on the app. Robinhood is um, is really the app that most of these users were using to buy stock with. They they freeze the GameStop stock for the buy option and made the stock crater down to uh, from 400 to 100 overnight and the outlash to that the the rage and the anger that happened with that and the real sense that the, the system was against the common person yeah that i was seeing firsthand and he was showing me a lot of that happening online and that noise so that was my my approach to this film i really wanted to do it through the eyes of the reddit users which leads to the, the creation i mean some of the characters in the movie are composite characters but you know the, the the choices of occupation are very very interesting. You know, America plays a nurse in this. Uh, Anthony Ramos plays a GameStop store employee. Uh, yes. So, can you talk about choosing those those different occupations and different walks of life? That you want to draw people well, from? Well, it's a the, it's a complicated story on the one side that not everybody was in it for the same reasons. So, you know, so we don't want to represent it as everybody was in for this common cause. There's a large group that was. There's also a lot of people that lost that, that um, got in at the wrong time. It was a that was something we we really wanted to stay true to and be fair with because otherwise, you know the Reddit platform can be very critical <laughs> of what's going on. Uh, but America's character is the closest to a character that was in uh, Ben Mesrick's book, Harmony, um, and and really a mouthpiece for this frustration of the disparity of wealth. Like she's really, like she's really in it for the movement and the cause and really wanted to like let Wall Street and let the one percenters hear that frustration. Um, that's a very complicated, interesting character trait because at the same time as making money which is she's up an enormous amount of money at one point the idea of selling goes against the other principle of trying yeah. to make a statement so they get into this conflicting messaging um where it's like does she need does she need to look after herself and her family 
or does she stay in there for the cause and and for the majority? And and so she really is a, a powerful voice in the film, and she does a beautiful job with it. Anthony Ramos's character, it's like, you know, you, we get to see like their net worth at the beginning and end of the film and the, to see like his net worth at $146. is The disparity of that versus Ken Griffin at $16 billion. Um, and then you, you really understand the stakes when he starts to make hundreds of thousands of dollars on this, like just how much that, that can change his world. I love that device because it it immediately sets up the stakes. But yeah, there there are audible gasps in the cinema whenever you see a character come up and it says net worth minus forty five thousand dollars, and you just go, "Oh my god!" Yeah, the student loans involved with the college kids. Yeah. It's it's just just those reality checks, and like, and that's like going back to this disparity of wealth, and just you know, and you see like it's just the sheer numbers that the hedge fund individuals are working with you know it's like where they're losing billions of dollars and they can still sleep at night because the movie's propelled by this sense of anger i think about about this idea that they're, they're getting away with metaphorical murder yeah i know it is i wanted that outrage to be in there it's like that it's like i felt that when it was happening and my son was showing me what was happening online and this incredible frustration that that they can the market can be manipulated like that and there's no accountability um, and that's the a really genuine frustration that people that were validated with. You know, it's like you feel like this is the case. You feel like like the the system is rigged in a way. And then to see it happen in real time and have no accountability, you want there to be that outrage. And I was definitely feeling it along with, you know, a lot of people online. So trying to have the movie access that and and feel that by the end of it was important like it was whether or not that's the best way to walk out of a film i'm not sure it seems i mean there's obviously a complicated relationship it's a very fun ride along the way it's intense there's a lot of there's a lot of uh twists and turns with it but and you know and there are some victors that are very gratifying at the end of the movie is particularly pete davidson walking out and looking at what he gets <laughs> out of this <laughs> it was a yeah. nice way to sum up <laughs> sum up some of those feelings uh, one of the interesting things about the film as well is just it's 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 such an ensemble piece. I mean, obviously the the focus is on Paul as as Keith, but it doesn't do that thing that a lot of ensemble movies do, which is bring the characters together at, at a certain point. Was that ever something that was on the table? Well, it's like you get it, it's an interesting thing because obviously COVID was such a large part of the catalyst for this movement, and that isolation is very much a part of COVID and what was going on to the point that. Uh, at the end of the film, when there is this congressional hearing, typically in a film, you'd be in you'd be in a you know a big hall somewhere. There'd be all that production value, and this is AOC and and all these Congress people like on Zooms, <laughs> which cinematically you would think would be a little bit of a handcuff. Um, but being able to pop between them all and have that connection emotionally with their performances, uh, all being like in real time, like watching this and participating in it and reacting to it in a sense they really feel together it's kind of like the classic sports match where you get to go to all the different characters witnessing the event you know yeah from, from all of their places so they wouldn't it, it was an unusual thing that they're never really in the same room they never meet like you know even in person really all these actors would come in one week at a time and do their and do their uh their work in the film. Did you ever have them together at any point? Were there rehearsals? Were there read-throughs? Rap party? Uh, no, it's like uh, the, the, the pros and the cons of having such an amazing cast 
um, is is also the availability. Like we literally got Anthony for like those that period of days between a television series he's doing and a movie he's doing. It's a the juggling of the sketch. Pete was in the middle of doing a TV show at the time, so we had um, very complicated schedules. And uh, with the exception of Paul who he and I sat down for weeks and weeks and just worked on his character and the script and, and the writers would then like, like translate that to these beautiful scenes. But uh, we had time to prep, but everybody else, it was, uh, you know, they'd land and be like, Hey, here we are. This is what we're doing. Here's the tone of the film. And let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I often ask actors this because obviously most films aren't shot chronologically. So actors have to be very, very good at tracking where their character is in any given time because you could be shooting your first scene could be the end of a movie or your big, your big climactic emotional point. And then yes. the next day you could be opening a door in the first scene. And, you know, you have to bounce around quite a lot. But so do the directors, of course. I mean, you have to keep track of every performance, every character, every scene, every beat. And you're bouncing around. How do you do it? I think it's like that's the thing where, where as a director, I think you've got to really be the gatekeeper and make sure, make sure that that arc is getting tracked. And in this case, we're jumping around so much. There's, I mean, there's we revisit all these characters multiple, multiple times. Sometimes it's for five seconds. You know, it's like because we're tracking it in against what's happening with the stock market. So in every case, you usually go to a reaction or a beat from each of our characters, as as well as these sort of more in-depth scenes. They all have four or five scenes. Um, so keeping track of that and where they are emotionally, we did have that sort of that ticket of the of the stock market and what was going on. They all had the same emotional arc in that sense, yeah. but they all had different stakes. Uh, so typically what I do as a director, I'm always like, you know, before the morning going through the shot list, going through the scene, where they've come from in the previous scene, where we're coming from as an audience in the previous scene, because you need to know what you're going to be cutting to when you come into the scene and we can't go from a wide to a wide, all those things have to be mapped out like long in advance. Um, so that they, you know, at least I've got a very clear understanding of where they are emotionally. Craig Gillespie, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Chris. Cheers, to talk to you. Thank Bye. you. And that was Craig Gillespie talking about dumb money. And now that is it for this week's Empire podcast. I've already done the join us next week bit. So all that remains for me to say is is goodbye for my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Toodaloo. Goodbye. Well, she's she's gone straight in there. I mean, I thought you were I thought you were trying to be quick, so I was trying to premature jatsing. Uh, it's <laughs> goodbye from squadcast <laughs> named Helen Omega. What does that mean? It's a reference to the creator. You wouldn't understand. It's a very simple <laughs> reference that you absolutely would understand. I think, we, I think we've, we've, um, we've established that I don't understand any of the films that I have seen <laughs> in my life, except Now You See Me, where I understand the magic was inside them all along. Mm. It's the friends they made along the way. It's goodbye from Jats Dyer. Goodbye. I'm going to play some Jats at the Badger and see if that will, uh, that will sort them out. <laughs> we'll see. Audio warfare. Max Rebo will out. <laughs> He's watching. Oh, I'm sure he's he just is. out of shot. Badgers like to watch. That's mm. why I hear. And it's goodbye for me, the creator and son, which is a reference to the creator. And mm. Thor and, and son. Steptoe and son. Now there is a mashup. There is a mashup. Anyway, I'm off to start editing this and I have four hours in which to do so. Plus do a spoiler <laughs> special. <laughs> Wish me luck. Thanks everybody. See you next time. Bye-bye.